unfortunately, some of the garments that we got from just they don't fit right. Like this my, was yeah, all, this was years ago. This yeah, was years ago. Yeah, my my crotch was at my knees. Like I I can't. It doesn't not in a good right. way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> not in a good way. <laughs> Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Deer Grow. Man, it's almost food plot season, Jared, and Deer Grow is one of those products that has really changed the way that we plant food plots and the success we've seen from them. No doubt. I've been, you know, trying to plant food plots my, my entire you know, whitetail hunting career, which is a little shorter than yours, but the minute that I started or that I, you know, I realized that I could get Deer Grow back into some of these remote plots where I couldn't get lime or fertilizer, especially in the 50 pound bag, you know, format, mm-hmm. so everything was changed. You know, I could get into these spots uh, moving forward with a, with a backpack sprayer and that's since escalated to these 40 or 60 uh, gallon sprayers and we're doing upwards of you know five to ten acre food plots just with your grow and having phenomenal success yeah and i mean with the price of fertilizer lime diesel everything this year i mean what better way to get in there and grow a successful food plot at about a third of the cost check out deer grow at deergrow.com and we're back hey on our podcast episode 93 yes, the year jared was born <laughs> yes, yes, it was. <laughs> we just discussed this. So yeah, three, three, ninety, three, 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 ninety. Easy to remember. Uh, it is. In case se- anybody's looking for a birthday gift for me, probably not. Uh, it's September, <laughs> September eighth, September eighth. Yep. But you're listening to this. I think we said like the twenty third or something, or thirtieth, yeah, mid September. Like yeah, yeah, late September, I think. Late September. Yep, and uh, washout in Kentucky last weekend. Not, not the greatest. Yeah. Got some things done that, that needed done, but um, we were in their wheelhouse, man. Just uh, every night they'd come in about 35, 40 minutes after dark until, was that Tuesday night I sent you the pictures? The next night. Two nights later. Oh, you weren't out we, Monday night? No, we came home Monday. Mm. So it was Tuesday night and like clockwork, there they are. Daylight. They were scouting and, you out. They were sitting in their car drinking it. coffee, eating french fries, waiting for you to leave. And then. So, yeah, I mean. It was fine. They were both in there. So he hunted for like two nights and then left. And then the following night, they were both, they were in both in there uh, broad daylight. Yeah, 20 yards from a blind. It, you know, the weather, the first night was was rough. I mean, it rained really heavy that day. Kind of let up, but was just misty and nasty that evening. We didn't see anything. And then the next day, they said it wasn't going to rain during the whole evening. From the moment we got in the blind at like 536 o'clock till dark, it rained. Poured. Whole time. And it, it, to be honest, even if those bucks came out, I don't think I would have let the kids shoot because, like, I have a pretty big pet peeve about shooting in the rain for with archery equipment. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's risky. Yeah, so I don't know. You know, we weren't going to get out of the blind, but I don't necessarily know if I would have let them shoot um, because yeah. of that. I was just hoping any minute it was going to let up, and it just, it didn't. So uh, we got some cameras reset. Um, uh, one of the food plots looks baller looks great uh the the one that we were hunting had i assume they're just hammering the beans in there but there was a lot of weeds we talked about this before you know some seed beds i think are just loaded with weeds and with the amount of rain we've gotten in these places yeah you know just takes them over so i uh nuked that food plot and then i seeded in uh some oats and winter peas cool so hopefully but then i got rain two hours later so i'm hoping the roundup took effect as long as it dried, it should be good. I don't know. I'm not sure what the window is. I think I think the rain fast window is if it dries. Rain fast? Is that what it's called? Yeah, you're good. Like okay. once it dries, then you're okay. And actually rain basically re- activates it for the plants to pull it through their pores. 
So you don't want like a downpour, I think, right after because that will wash it off. But um, gotcha. So I don't know. So we'll see. I'll keep an eye on the food plots. But yeah, other than that, man, pretty uh, uneventful opening weekend. Did the other night. <clears throat> um, <laughs> I just let the dogs out before we go to bed mm-hmm. and uh, let them out. And then uh, <laughs> went to bed. <laughs> it was like five in the morning. I was still dark out. I heard this freaking dog barking at my house. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> and I was just like, what is going on? Like, and I look out and I, and I think I see like a dog barking at our house. I'm like, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> and I get out crate doors open. I had never let them in. <laughs> I just left my dogs out all night. All night. Yeah, they were. And you d- don't have a fence. Like, they don't have a fence. No, the they were for sure. I mean, Gunner was, looks like he had been, came from a rave or something. He was, yeah. They were having a good time tearing mm-hmm. up the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Gunner's fixed right mm-hmm. yeah so buckley I, I didn't even consider that buckley, we might buckley's out there breeding like a madman yeah most he, other people are pretty responsible for their dogs he came so back making up for my irresponsibility turn it off i'm dry <laughs> dude but buckley's like a rutting buck at all times like mm-hmm. he's it's it's um, well, i mean you got him all penned up with that daddy's all pent up yeah you know? he's, he's, he's got it go. all built up in there so yeah, I'm sure he had a blast. I don't know what kind of crosses you're going to be producing uh, out in that neighborhood. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> the other night they had a groundhog cornered in my yard, like in the middle of the night. It was like yeah. 10, 10 o'clock. We were getting ready to go to bed, and I same thing. They're barking. I go out. I'm like, what's going on? And there's a groundhog like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they've got him cornered. Hey, little fella. <laughs> yeah. Hey, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. All right, so you're leaving on an elk hunt uh, next week. We're within a week. Yeah, if you're listening to this, you're probably back or coming back at this point. Yep. Um, we talked about that in one of the last, I think, two podcasts ago. Yeah. Um, we kind of went through your gear. And so when you come back, we're going to do a recap of that hunt. Um, but for most people listening to this, if you're in Ohio, I think season probably is just opening. If you're in Pennsylvania, Michigan, uh, Minnesota, I think a bunch of these states are like we're just opening bow season. So we figured, like, let's bring in a guest that's going to get everybody fired up for uh, bow season. So we got Mr. John Eberhardt back. Um, and, you know, what better way to kind of lean into the uh, the bow season opener than with a guy who, you know, probably has been bow hunting longer than both of us have been alive, I would say. Yeah, seen a lot of seasons. Mm-hmm. And so I, we're going to kind of pick John's brain on a few things here and, talk about what he's got prepped for the opener in Michigan and, uh, you know, what some of his strategies are. And then, you know, maybe dive into a couple, couple other topics while we got them. Cool. Let's bring John in. Hey, how's it going guys? Good morning. <laughs> Doing nice sheds. Good. Yeah. Look at that. Huh? Nice pile of sheds. Uh, so pretty much none of them from Pennsylvania. This one was, uh, but everything else was from Kansas, I believe. There's not as many as they, they're just big sheds. Big Kansas show. Hoping to catch up with oh, this one this year. Wow. That's a dandy. That's a public public deer. Crap. Yeah. Really? Yep. That's a public deer. Six, seven, eight. Whoa. Split brow time. This guy was also a public deer. Also Where was that from? Kansas. It's not fair, is it? <laughs> no, it's yeah. not, isn't it? We're almost worried to tell you because we know you're going to tell us how easy it is. Yeah. Well, I mean, while, uh, we're, while we're striking no, out well, year after easier. year. No, it's never easy. Well, yeah, easier. I mean, the funny thing is, well, in most of those, and again, it's no, not knocking anything in the Midwest. Like it's deer hunting. Nothing's ever planned out. But, you know, if you get to, um, you know, a state like Kansas, you know, especially in that 
late October, November time period, you know, and you set up in some of these funnels on public land, I mean, odds are you're going to see a bigger deer there than you probably will see in, you know, any of the other states, Michigan, Pennsylvania, wherever uh, that you're hunting. Like, it's just, they make big bucks out there. And it's because they get old. You know, probably. that's that's it. You said probably? Definitely. 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 Yeah. Well, 100% yeah. guarantee. <laughs> yeah, well, John, you guys hunt Kansas, right? I think I saw a video of you yeah. and you and your sons hunting out there. Was that last year? Yeah, last year. Yeah. Did you guys draw this year? We did. You did? Good for We're you. Geek, man. We're ready to go again. Yeah, we all shot nice. We all shot really good bucks last year. Nice. Yeah. What part of the state are you guys in? Uh, we are in Northern central. We're about okay. a half hour South of Nebraska, yep. pretty much center of the state, East, West, maybe a little bit farther West. So we're out in the plains area, gotcha. not the green cool. part, not the egg part to the East. Yep. So that's where we're down Southeast corner. Um, coffee County. Yeah. Flint green, Hills. Greenwood. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think it's, it, you know, just like anywhere, I mean, it's not a gimme, right? But, it, you know, I, I guess, John, do you use, um, how, how do you alter your techniques from Michigan and apply them to Kansas? You know, when well, you're I gotta out ask there? you guys, so this is your first time to Kansas. No, we've been there for nine. I've been there nine years. I guess it'll be okay. my third or fourth. fourth. This will be my fourth, fourth, but sixth year we've been putting in. Mm -hmm. Didn't draw last year or yeah. a couple years ago. I never want to say it's easy. But it's it's far easier than where you guys typically hunt. Sure. Let's put it that way, because there's there's so many more mature bucks. I have never been to Kansas where I could not have shot a one point five. I usually try yeah. to, you know, when I started, I that's because all the two year olds are one hundred and twenty five inches <laughs> out there. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely. You're absolutely correct. You see them all the time. Yeah, yeah. I can remember one year I saw eighteen different P and Ys in a week. Yeah, I mean. I won't see. There's, I've had three years go by here in Michigan without seeing one PNY box. Hundred so, percent. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm sure you see the same thing in PA. So I, I'm sorry. The question was, well, what do I, I do? Yeah. What well, you know? I mean, obviously, you've got a a very definitive plan, like for the Michigan opener coming up and stuff. But when you guys go out to Kansas, like, how, how do you take that same kind of mindset and apply it to, you know, what is a, basically a completely different landscape? We totally drop our guard when we go to Kansas. So I'm very cautious putting cameras out in Michigan because uh, visits are intrusive. Now with cell cameras, it's not that bad. I put out four cell cams yesterday, Exodus cams. And uh, we put, we actually put a cell cam the last three times we've been to Kansas at every single hunting location. When we usually have about 11 to 12 trees prepped for three guys. And we totally hunt by what we get on the cameras. Hmm. Now, even prior to the cell cameras in Kansas, we would actually put cameras at every location and we would go visit them every day and pull the cards. We'd swap the cards out and it did not seem to affect movement because the deer just, they seem oblivious to human intrusions. Like I shouldn't say oblivious, but more so than like Michigan or PA or New York or Virginia where there's a lot of hunting pressure mm -hmm. um, because there's just not a lot of hunting pressure. And uh, so we set up in either pinch points or at scrape areas. Yep. And typically where we're at, because we're farther West, there's not a lot of timber. So you get these draws, these old floodplains draws, and they may be, 
they could be 50 to 100 foot deep from the flat ag area. And it's kind of weird. You'll look across a section or two sections and you'll see the tips of these trees out maybe a half a mile from the road. And you go out there and they're 120 foot tall cottonwoods hmm. coming up out of these draws. And in these draws, that's where if there's ever any moisture, that's where everything runs off into. And there's weeds, there's hemp, there's plum brush. It's just excellent, excellent security cover for that type of an area. It wouldn't be good security cover for Michigan. They'd all get killed because it's not heavy security cover like a swamp. Sure. But it's the best security cover they have. So you just set up in the pinch points in those draws because that's the only place they have to transition through with any security cover during daylight hours. So where we're at, I'd say 80 to 85 percent of the land is either open prairie or it's in crops and 15 percent of the land is in security cover so the, the security cover is so small the deer during the daytime are very condensed and they travel those draws and it's just it's just really easy it's actually easier than hunting eastern kansas in my opinion because eastern kansas has a lot more timber sure so deer tend to wander more in big timber I, here i'll try to make an analogy <clears throat> i don't know if it'll come out right or not but like was it the native americans that would you know make fish traps essentially that would push you know fish out of the main river into mm -hmm. smaller pools mm -hmm. and they were easier yeah. than at that point yeah. to, to spear mm -hmm. you know the, the midwest seems to just in its nature you know because of uh like you said how limited the, the habitat or like the the you know, the places they feel comfortable moving during like the security cover, hour, the yeah. security cover, they become, you know, you have much less to cover. Sure. You know, it, it's easier to pick a spot. You know, it's basically like, hey, listen, there's, they can only come through a handful of spots here. You know, that's, that's the one. So, John, I guess my question, and it obviously, you know, anybody who hunts Pennsylvania, New York, Ohio, Michigan, whatever, here's you saying like, yeah, I'm, we're going in and checking these cameras before cell camera days all the time. Like that's a huge no, no in our area, right? Like we blow every freaking deer out from, you know, in a square mile radius. Yep. When you guys are doing that in Kansas though, are the, let's say, are the bucks that you guys end up harvesting usually captured on those cameras? Like you're hunting then a specific deer in that area. A hundred percent. Huh? 100%. We are totally hunting. Even when we did the SD card where you had to go to each spot. I mean, what, usually we have one four-wheeler. I have my minivan. My sons both have four-wheelers. So we would drive to, we will physically drive right up to the, to the camera. And well, you know, 20 yards sometimes. Yeah. Wow. Uh, because you can drive down the edges of these crop fields and you just walk down into the draw where some of the draws you can drive through the draws. And we would pull cards and check them. And if there was a buck there that morning, uh, we this was always midday when we're checking the cameras, sure. uh, pulling cards. Uh, we'd go sit there the next morning. If there was a buck there the evening before, we'd sit there that evening, even though we were just there doing a card. You would never do that. No, before. that or is the either. truth, man. No way. Dude, the way the way that I think about it is like <clears throat> it, all these northeastern states is like you know we piece together a plan in our heads and we're like, uh, okay, that these you know fence lines come together here mm -hmm. or this is a this funnel is going to work because of this and. And like so many times, I think we, we think it's going to work and then it doesn't, you know, we, we go and hunt it and it, it doesn't pan out. It seems like all, that same thought process when applied to a, a state like Kansas, and I can't speak to, you know, Iowa, I've never hunted there, but you know, some of, some of these other Midwestern states, 
and, and I'll, I'll make a comment too. It seems like the further like west you go, the more like this it is, even for, for mule deer, I think. Like in the Dakotas those, and stuff. The yeah. Dakotas, yeah. Those deer just like, they do what they're supposed to do. Like th- this thought that we have of like, they're going to do this because this is this way. Sure. In the Northeast, it seems like so many times that doesn't happen because it's like they caught your wind or they'd been pressured and now they're doing something different or food source is different. Out there, like the percentage of that panning out the way you thought mm-hmm. it would be seems to just be higher. Well, and I would assume it's all, it's all circled around hunting pressure, right? I mean, that 100%. is, that is the, yeah. the, the commonality. If you look at what Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, Wisconsin, like all these states have that frankly, Kansas, Iowa, and the Dakotas don't have, it's hunting pressure, period. Yeah, maybe. It's hunting probably pre- parcel. Oh, so. that, that's not a maybe, Jared. That's yeah. 100% pressure. Bad. Hunting pressure is more important than anything else. Everything revolves around hunting pressure. The more pressure there are, there is, the less mature bucks move during daylight, the more deeper into the security cover they are going to be during daylight hours. And out there, there's, there's so little hunting pressure. There's so many mature bucks. The rut is so competitive. They respond to rattling. They respond to decoys. They respond to just about anything. And there's, because they don't have a house every 300 sure. yards down the roads, you know, you, there may be five miles between homes. But the farmers, they're always driving around in their quads. They drive down through the, the uh, draws and stuff, draw, you know, fix fences and stuff. But there's never any negative consequences to the deer, you know, when there is that human activity. So, yeah. you know, they can spook deer with their trucks and quads and tractors and they just go back to doing the same thing. So when you go check a camera, they just come right back in the, the very next day. I mean, yeah. they have a very routine, but. You know, it's it's very common out there to get a picture of a buck in a in a draw in one spot, and the next day get a picture of that same exact buck two miles away in the same draw. Because those draws run for miles yeah. and miles and miles. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. They that, just run through those draws trying to intercept whatever esters goes there may be. And we always go post, hmm. so we always go after the deep run. Okay. So yeah. do we. Yeah, um, we're usually th- leaning on the edge of it. That makes me feel a little better about, um, th- there's a spot on public down there that I, I've i really clung to. And recently here, we've got a, a cell camera and we've seen some, I don't know if they're DNR guys or I think it's the neighbors guys fixing fences. Fixing, fixing fences. And I mean, it's back in there. Like, in a th- like I can't believe they're back there, honestly. Yep. But I, I'm not too worried about it. Like, I think, you know, by the time week before November or week before Thanksgiving rolls around, which is when we'll be there. Um, I, I don't think it's going to have really any impact well, on how they're cruising through there. I think like John said, even with yep. those guys in there, there, there's no negative impact to the deer by them being there fixing the fence. Yeah. Like that, you know, it just isn't. And we rarely, we usually have cameras there, maybe not 12 months of the year running, but nine. And we rarely see any other hunters back there. Yeah. Like very, very rare. Well, that's the other thing we said too, is this is the first year we've got the camera actually on the fence line. And so it's entirely possible that these past three to five years that we've been hunting it, they were in there doing that fence work, and we just never knew it. Yeah. Sure. Well, well I think- those farmers out there, they're repairing fences and stuff all the time, but there's no negative, like you said, no, no negative, negative to the deer. And it's good that you have that mindset, though, Jared, because when I first started hunting out west, I went with the same mindset that I hunt for Michigan. Everything, you know, I assumed it was going to be similar. And it didn't take me long to find out it wasn't similar. It was much easier because there's so many mature bucks and there's so little hunting pressure. And it it just got to the point where we just dropped our guard 100 percent 
just did the natural thing, you know, like the TV guys do. You can yeah. look at a, you know, <laughs> on real. their private, big managed properties, they can look at an aerial and find a pinch point because there's no hunting pressure. Nothing's going to affect that pinch point other than them. And they can set up in that pinch point and do really well. You can't do that. You can't go Google an aerial on public land in PA or West Virginia, and find a pinch point and assume nobody else is going to have that all screwed up for daytime activity. So, you know, it's good to go with that mindset, though, that yeah. you have, because when you know how to kill deer in a PA or a Virginia and you're hunting some public lands and stuff, it just makes it that much easier out there. You just have to drop some of that guard because those deer will move in areas during daylight hours, deer where you hunt. It is crazy, dude. I, that eight point, I've only killed one buck out there, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I've only killed one buck out there. It's like a 140-inch eight point, probably a four-year-old. It was my best year at the time, and uh, that deer came from dead downwind, and mm -hmm. I knew, I know he caw my wind. I saw 100%. him take his nose up, and then he decided, it's fine. Yeah, it didn't matter. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going anyways. Well, and, and the reason you were in there, like, because this was what, the, the next to the last day, I think, that we were in there for yeah, hunting? Yeah, I had hunted it for like six days straight. Well, and, and he had he had been on this pattern. It was an old uh, railroad track bed, yeah. and he would he would get up on this railroad track bed, and there was a couple scrapes on it, but he would work this back and forth between north to south uh, between yep. the two properties. And, like, we knew he was kind of on that pattern, and so that's why you stuck it out, and damned if that's not how you killed him. He got right up on that bed, walked it, and, and again, and you know, it was the only tree that we could make it work for that that situation. You were basically eye level with that deer because yeah. the tree sat down and the railroad bed was up high. Right. You were almost eye level. It was all the things that back home we would have been picked out miles before. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, the odds of that deer where you're at in PA not turning in inside out to get the hell out of Dodge. <laughs> we would have never even seen him. 100%. He, he would have caught our wind far before we would ever laid eyes on him and hightailed it out well of like it gets it's worse than that i had rattled that deer into the set earlier in the week yeah and like almost got a shot at him and i think he ended up kind of boogering or whatever and like he didn't see anything he yeah. didn't see anything and then that the morning that i killed him i saw him at first light you know and, and i grunted at him and like he so he's well aware that there's like there's something happening in that bottom <laughs> that like it's kind of weird yeah and then later in the morning he just was he was going back to bed and even though he smelled me he says you know, I'm going, that's where I'm going. There's no other way to get there. So that's where I'm going. Yeah. And, and like you said, yeah, I killed him. I level at 15 yards. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's crazy. I just watched a TV, well, yeah. just watched a TV show the other day, which I rarely watch TV, but I'm watch. the more I watch him, the sicker I get it. <laughs> and, and this guy shot at this buck. I think it was in Kansas actually, but it was on some, a lease. Uh, he shot at this buck and he missed it. At like 20 yards and he was hunting over a pile of corn and that buck ran out about 20 30 yards farther behind some brush and stood there and looked at the guy in the tree and then he walked off the guy tried to grunt him back in which was stupid to try and grunt a deer in that you just <laughs> missed and the deer's looking at you in the tree uh that buck came right back the next day and he shot it i mean it's yeah. just yeah it's it's i mean i feel like if i spook a deer in michigan that tree to me is compromised for that year yeah. for that deer. Yeah. That deer is not going to come by that tree in the daytime. He yeah. may go by it, but he's not going to come, you know, if it's an oak with acorns, he may come feed at it at night. Sure. Yeah. Come back. Well, I think it's, 
you know, a lot of guys here say like it's it's easier, and that's just like the, I don't know the term that we're applying. It's not necessarily a negative. Like it's it's pretty freaking cool. I mean, case in point, we're all going to Kansas this year to yeah. experience that. Yeah, it's an amazing man. How awesome is it that you can go in, get aggressive, get away with stuff you never would otherwise, and maybe kill a giant buck? Yeah, I that's mean, awesome. When we when I took my dad out there, I think it was the first year he was there. You know, and and this is a guy who hunted his entire life in Pennsylvania, never hunted out of state. Pennsylvania is all he knows, right? We put him in a stand in Kansas. And one morning there were eight different bucks chasing a single doe. And probably three of those were well over Pope and young. And he's like, what kind of place is this? You know, but, but it's, it's because like you hear people and, and again, go back to the TV side of things, you know, you watch these things and you're like, man, that's like, that's not real. Like that never happens. Well, exactly, you, we never see it. It's exactly right. what I was saying earlier. It's like, e even our dads had gone in with that mindset of, oh, this setup's going to work. And, yeah. and, and it rarely does, you know, it just, it doesn't pan out. The deer's not there, whatever. And so to go to Kansas and have all of your wildest dreams <laughs> that you've had for 30 years fulfilled in a single morning in Kansas yeah. is like, where has this been my whole life? You know? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I felt when I went out there, and I it was only is, man. twenty or something. It's, uh, I mean, it, you know, I've got no. I, we talked about it the other day. I think, you know, four of my five biggest bucks have been from Kansas. No surprise, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just just what it is. It's, it's interesting how the guys from out there perceive the, the eastern states. I, I was talking to uh, Cameron. What's Cam's last name? Coble. Cameron Coble. Yesterday, mm -hmm. for a while, we're gonna have him on a podcast here. So he's from Southern Iowa. And he was asking me about like Ohio. He's like, "What do you what do you think is better, like Kansas or Ohio?" And I'm like, "It's <laughs> what well, it's interesting that to that, hear him say to it. hear him say that. I mean, this guy breathes deer. You know, he's constantly studying the record books. He's a Boone and Crockett official yeah. scorer and stuff. And a lot of Boone and Crockett deer have come from Ohio. And so sure. I think having not hunted, he's like, "Well, like, I don't. What do you think? Like, is Ohio Ohio seems like way up there." It, and it, he's not wrong. I mean, they, they do kill a lot of Boone and Crockett. I, we've killed some nice deer out of there, but it is it's a different it's a very different thing yeah. for, for a lot of reasons. The main one we talked yesterday was I think topography. Yeah, I think deer have a ton of advantages uh, in the Northeast. The two that come to mind is exposure to pressure. Yeah, which makes them harder to kill. That John's obviously going to agree with that one. They're familiar with how to get away and survive. Hunters. Yeah, those older bucks have been through the ringer. They know where they need to go to yeah. be secure. And two, and maybe it's just a, a subsequent of that is the the topography, the terrain mm -hmm. gives them a major advantage when it comes to thermals and access access and line of sight, as opposed to in the Midwest. It's pretty easy to kill a deer on flat land where they have no thermal advantage or can't see you coming. Well, I mean, all three of us, I think, would agree. One of the things that I've noticed the most about Kansas easy, again, relative. is when they're, you know, I mean, there's almost every day there's a 20-plus wind blowing out of some direction, right? The days where there is very little wind, those deer don't move at all. Yeah. Like, I don't see, I don't see anything moving in Kansas. Whereas normally... You know, when it's blowing, but like Jared said, that's you don't get the swirls and the thermals out there because everything's flat. Exactly. Just, <laughs> just straight through. Yeah, we're normally. I mean, I don't pay attention to wind, as you guys well know. Yeah. I, I feel for you guys because I did what you do for 35 yeah. years. Yeah. yeah. Well, and it's not even that, John, as much as it is like, you know, I'm a very, I use my ears probably more than my eyes when I'm hunting, right? I'm a very here, here, here. I go out to Kansas and it's blowing 35 miles an hour. I'm holding onto the tree. I can't, I, I'm not hearing anything, you know? Yeah. And so it's just, it always. You're just hoping you can draw your bow back yeah. by the time they come in. You know, play the, play the lean as the wind's blowing me. But it, it just, 
it seems very strange that that is a very natural movement in weather conditions for those deer. Whereas if it was blowing 35 back home in Pennsylvania, those deer aren't moving at all. They are locked down, you know, and it's just, that's the way that it lays out. Because there's, when you get a heavy wind in a Northeastern state, you got a lot of movement. So a deer's visual and a deer's hearing is pretty much worthless. Yep. And they, they are just uncomfortable with all that movement. Now you get out West where you've got a lot of winds. I can remember I shot one of my bigger bucks in Illinois on public land two days after gun season ended in mid December, 35 mile an hour winds, wind chill was like 20 below zero. And I shot a monster 12 point. Um, and he was moving in the wind. Mm-hmm. I saw five bucks that night, Yeah, but it was out West, you know, Southern Illinois, you get to Southern Illinois and you go Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska, uh, the Dakotas, parts of Missouri. I mean, those are all anomaly states that just have monster big bucks and very minimal hunting pressure. Mm-hmm. You know, I can remember I'm a sales rep and I'm retiring at the end of this year from that job. Um, and I rep for Quaker Boy. Yep. And this, uh, this kind of goes hand in hand with deer. But there's so many videos. There were so many coyote videos where they were filmed west of the Mississippi River. And basically, you you know, two, every two or three calls out of five or six, you have something come in. Yep. And the, it got to the point where the stores in, you know, where I'm at in Michigan wouldn't even carry a coyote video, a call video, if it was made in Kansas or Iowa or Nebraska. They wanted videos that were only made east of the Mississippi River where there's hunting pressure because coyotes are exactly the same. Yeah, You can go out there and call coyotes with no problem. I can remember a guy shot over 150 coyotes. He lived in Iowa and he hunted in Kansas and Iowa. And he shot over 150 coyotes. And he moved to Michigan because he married a girl that worked at a sporting goods store up here. And he thought he was going to do something similar to that in Michigan. He shot one coyote in a full season. Wow. winner of calling coyotes. He shot one and it had the name. I've said this on the podcast before, John. I've got some family in Montana, and like yeah. just to paint a picture of how different these places are, that country is so vast out there, and the coyotes are so plentiful. They just run them over with snowmobiles. They don't even <laughs> like they don't yeah. even go with calls. They're just like, "There's one a mile away," and they just run it down and run it over. Wow! <laughs> and they'll kill dozens of them like that every year. They do big like voyages of like a dozen sleds, and they're hey, let's Jeez. head to Billings and. <laughs> You know, I, I think using dogs, they use snowmobiles. Well, those snowmobiles will go like 90, 100 oh, miles yeah. an hour. I'm mean, just coyotes have no right. chance. Jeez. You know, wow. I th- and I think we brought this up last time with John, you know, it, and it's not, it's not in a cocky way, right? But I do think that there's a strategic advantage to anyone growing up hunting Pennsylvania, Michigan, New York, Wisconsin, et cetera. Excellent. Then you go to these states that have complete opposite of, of hunting pressure that we see. And I think that, you know, you probably are overly cautious the first time you hunt it because you're trying to apply the same skill set and the same strategy that you've been used to hunting your whole life. But quickly you can adapt and say, well, damn, like this, this isn't nearly as hard as what I'm dealing with back home. You know, flip it around. Like you just said in the coyote situation, John, this is what Kansas and Iowa people, and I'm not picking on them, but bring them to Ohio, Pennsylvania, New York, Michigan, and ask them to, to do the same thing. It's not happening. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel, you know, I feel sorry for a lot of those guys out West because they don't know any different. I mean, 
when I wrote my books, pretty much every time I talk to anybody out west, they they don't know anything different than what they're hunting. Sure. So they can't comprehend how some states in the east can be more difficult than where they're at. They don't. They just can't comprehend that. They because they think they're hunting pressure deer. Yeah, yeah. So until they actually do it, which they're not going to do, you're not going <laughs> to see somebody that from Kansas go to PA to go deer hunting. Yeah. It's well, just not going to happen unless it's with a family for a social event. Yeah. So, well, and here, John, if I, if I can like, you know, shed light on that too, because if I, if I heard that and I was a Midwestern hunter, like I, I would take offense, like just, it would be my first, uh, sure. first response Absolutely. would be like, well, what do you mean? Yeah. It, it's not obviously not their fault. I think what Jeremy and I have come to realize is, um, in a lot of different aspects of, of life and hunting is it, it really is like the, the, the difficulties and the, the struggles and like so for us just the fact that we live here in a high pressure state and don't have access to huge bucks riding like crazy all the time and that sucks 90 percent of the time but when we do get to go out and participate in something like like a kansas whitetail rut hunt it's like it's beyond our wildest dreams you know mm -hmm. whereas if we lived in that environment 365 days out of the year it, it's just kind of another day mm -hmm. and so We've had to just change our perspective and say the way we look at it is that, you know, in that same same respect, I do feel bad for those Midwestern guys because it, 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 it's, it's just kind of a weird way to say it. They don't get to experience those. Yeah. You know, the difficult, the difficult well, times. It goes back to one of our yeah. past discussions we had. I don't know if it was a podcast or two ago, John, but we, we discussed. Um, I don't know how to say it without like sounding rude. We've discussed like how nobody's ever really been labeled like the best whitetail hunter Be because oh, you, you can never label that. That's impossible. Yeah. Well, and that's what I'm saying is because like you hear it thrown around like, and I'm listen, there are very, there's some very good whitetail hunters. We're talking to one. John Eberhard is one of these guys, but like, I can't compare you to uh, Don Higgins who lives and hunts in Illinois and Iowa. Right, it's it's two completely different beasts. What relative? Yeah, what your what your success looks like in a Michigan compared to what Don's looks like in an Illinois, maybe on the same playing field, but from a number standpoint, if I'm talking purely from a score standpoint or or whatever, it's not it's not the same playing field, right? Because oh, no, no. so it's like when you're. Um, I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. no, no, no. You're fine, John. Go. It it's kind of like when you're the only person hunting a property. It's like if I were the only quarterback in the NFL at my size, 160 pounds, I'd, I'd win the MVP every year. I'd be the best quarterback in the NFL. Yes. Or if I was the only guy in a swimming match, you know, did Mike, you know, Michael, throw Michael Phelps out of the question. If I was the only swimmer in a competition, I would win every freaking time. Yeah. So anytime you are the only one, if, if you can't do something against competition, there's no way of rating your skill set. Mm -hmm. Absolutely none. All competition or all skill sets should be paced based on what type of competitive situation you're in. Yeah. Because none of these pro athletes, the icon, Nicholson's, the LeBron James's, the uh, Michael Jordan, <clears throat> Mickey Mantle, uh, Michael Phelps, Tom Brady, you know, they grew up swimming or playing golf or playing basketball or playing football on the same exact fields as all of their competitors through middle school, through high school, through college, if they got scholarships to college. And then when they made it to the pros, that's another step up in skill set. But they they surpassed 
all of their competition to reach the icon status. Right. And they competed on the same exact field all the time. Yeah. You can't, I can't take anybody seriously that hunts 100% exclusive property and kills a monster buck every year. And his skill set means nothing to me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Personally, I watched a uh, podcast with Tom or Tony LaPrat and Don Higgins, and I, it's the only podcast I've ever watched from start to finish. That was and, the one with uh, both of them on at the same time. Tony blew him out of the water. And what you who is Tony? Tell, Tony LaPrat's from Michigan. He's a Tony LaPrat used to kill deer before he did this land management thing. Okay. He, he's, he's a pretty stone cold killer. And he knows how to hunt. Yeah. Uh, in my opinion, Don Higgins, you know, anybody with the finances to do so can kill monster bucks. Mm-hmm. Just buy a bunch of property and don't let anybody else hunt it. Put food plots out there. Never interrupt the property. Uh, put cameras out once you get a deer coming into the camera. Just Seems like to be I the recipe. Just yep. go sit there and kill. You know, yep. that takes zero skill in my opinion. Huh. Other than the fact that you're planting nice crops like a farmer and growing deer. Um Tony, I mean, when you if you ever watched that podcast, Tony absolutely blew Don away. You could tell who the true hunter was. We'll have to watch that. Interesting. I, I am not a land management guy, but I know Tony, and Tony was killing deer before he started this land management thing in pressured areas. So when he goes and does land management things for people, he knew how to kill pressured deer. So if you're yeah. going to do land management on somebody and all their property, bordering properties are surrounded by tens and twenties of people that are not like-minded, Tony knows how to set up property. So you're going to have deer opportunities on your property, even though the deer may be pressured on the bordering property. Yeah. I think in, in fairness, or just like the conversation, and, th- and this also ties into what you're talking earlier in terms of like competition or, uh, you know, icon status, who, who's the best or whatever. Um, yeah. it, it almost just seems like a, it's a different thing. Um, I mean, there's a big conversation to try to like put into a few statements here, but sure. like, it seems like what Don Higgins and, you know, some of the guys, it, let's throw Mark Drury in there. Some people that are known for, you know, managing, you know, you know, high profile farms, yeah. ultra management, yeah. that, yeah. It, that is a very different thing and, and requires almost a, a, it's not no skill. It's a different skill set to be able to like you know, to, to, you know, build a farm into like a hunting environment. That's like the ultimate control. Like I put the food plot there. I put the water hole here. I put the box blind here. I manipulated these deer's movement to be able to get them to do that. That that's almost to me, it's the same activity, same sport, but it's an entirely different thing and skill set than what you and Tony are going after, which is very little manipulation, solely hunting pursuit, understanding, you know, reacting to what a deer is doing to be able to kill him on, on his terms. Like, you know, I, I think Jeremy and I have respect for, for both. Well, it's cause we do both. We, we, we have do both. property that we manage and we hunt and it, and it is not pressured, right? We also go to a lot of places where there is pressure and the challenge of getting on a buck and finding that buck and yeah. getting in the right place at the right time is it's satisfying, but in a different way. And, and why, I, and why I think John, and I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you have a rebuttal here. Why I think that that relates to like our, the competition thing and like, who's, who's the best hunter, which is a fair question. Like as human beings, I think we all want, who's the best, you know, who can we look to? Who's, yeah. who's like, uh, you know, the best, um, unlike sports, you know, even though, you know, you play on different fields against different teams, like, you know, there's different objective or, or ways to score the, 
the sport of hunting, I think, is so much more dynamic, not only in the sense that, like, the environments are different, but literally the objectives are different. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's like, well, if my objective is to, to kill a certain age class of animal, a certain score, a specific animal with a certain weapon, like, it's so it's so much more dynamic than, you know, just use the NFL, say, like, the point is score a touchdown, get the most amount of points. And, yeah, I can do it by running or throwing. You still have Real to score. Minor. You still have to score points. You know, and in hunting, points, but they grow those points. I mean, when you are on those ultra management places, you are not shooting deer, or you're culling eight points. You're culling any deer that are not double digit when they're two and a half year old. You're mm-hmm. physically growing deer just like a rancher grows cattle for the market. Yeah. The only difference is they grow deer. They got multiple mon- multiple monster bucks on their properties. Mm-hmm. And once they hit the entertainment value of TV, then they shoot them. So it's not like it, it's to me, it's just different. If, when you take competition out of the mix, uh, I think 50 percent of the hunters in this country could go on Drury's property or Don Higgins property and do every every sure, business sure. well, with the same gear on that property. But but in fairness, John, I don't think that fifty percent of guys could have manipulated the property the way that Don and, and Mark have done. Well, they wouldn't have the finances for sure. Sure. Big part of it. And and that's that's what I'm saying is like I think that it's not like a a point that they've reached like it's beyond what any of us have done. It's just the the circumstances that they're in because they have finances to do it because they live in a state that you know allows that for that to happen it seems like those guys <clears throat> and i've experienced a little bit of this like just in, in land ownership i can see why it's appealing not again not yeah. as better or worse sure. i think those guys are getting more satisfaction out of being able to manipulate a property in a deer's movement you know, and then ultimately killing him than you know, in your, in your words, essentially being a better hunter, like under being able to read sign, being able to hunt against other hunter pressure. It's a, it's become a different thing for them. Well, it's their job. That's their job. I mean, Mark Drury's job is to sell his skill set to hunters and that's fair, obviously get sponsorships. That's his job. So he's in the entertainment field. Uh, I can remember when he first started coming out and bow hunting in the 90s. We were, I used to rep Drury videos yeah. and, and those guys are, Well, you somebody else, John. You, well, there's you a lot somebody of that's not that, in the industry. Like, are you guys they, brought up Drury's. I didn't. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> well, yeah, no, no, no. And I want to stay on it. But So let's use another guy who's not on TV, who's it's not his business. Like, you know, the question would be are there guys out there who like, Oh, without a doubt. I know what you're saying. I know where you're going. Yeah, there's Okay. thousands and thousands of people that love to, and I agree with that. You know what, Jared, I, I'd be an idiot to say I don't agree with that. People want to kill big bucks, so they want to have the least competition they can. They want to grow as many big bucks on the property as they can, so their odds are going to be better, obviously. Yeah. And, uh, you know, obviously, you, the more people you keep off your property and the more you keep it to yourself, the less the deer are pressured, the more they're going to move during daylight hours, the monster bucks. You're not targeting them until they're four and a half years old. So they have no negative consequences when they go by the hunters as they're growing up to that age. So they're more apt to move during daylight hours. They're going to be less worried about wind direction, you know, if they smell humans because they did it when they were one and a half, two and a half and three and a half year old bucks and they didn't get shot. I think think it's a a lot of different. I think it's a control thing, John. I think it's just, and maybe not everybody has that, but like, 
I think as hunter, as bow hunters, especially, and as as men, I know I am this way. Inherently, like I feel the need or or the desire to like have control over the situation or or wildlife. And so, you know, I having planted food plots myself, or you know, even on the the lowest level that hung, hung a stand, a set that was successful. The fact that I w- manip- controlled that environment, like the deer did what I. Ma- sure. I made it do that essentially. Like it, it's yeah. all, and I've said it before. I, in when it comes to deer hunting, I'd almost I'd rather be good than lucky, mm-hmm. because the the satisfaction that I get out of having sure. controlled that situation. You know, I think some guys really take and run with that saying. all the way to yeah. the point of managing thousand acres uh, and I. You know, I, I yeah, think I understand. Uh, I think it's gratifying uh, to do what you're doing and have it all come together and get. Well, you know, yeah. I totally get that. And yeah. I, I almost think to to a point, and again, biggest property I'm managing is 130 acres. So in all aspects, I'm not controlling anything, but <laughs> the, the, the fact I is- I can't even control my emotions I, in I a stand. Control <laughs> yeah, I can't control anything. Uh, the fact is, is like- I, Much less my bowels. Yeah, no shit. <laughs> I, almost, uh, I almost get more sad, like I, it's two very different things. Like, so for instance, last night I'm behind my house, I got 28 acres behind the house. I, you know, we cleared out an acre of timber recently and the food plot looks great and the kids are excited about it. Like the hunting aspect of that, although in the back of my mind is not nearly what's registering at that moment. To me, it's more of like, cool, I set out a goal on this property. I wanted to do this. I want to see deer. I want to observe deer. But I'm almost not even thinking about, like, how am I going to kill that buck or a big buck or whatever? Like, it's more of what did, I, what did I create yeah. to then... And I'm, I'm agreeing in John's sense, too, of, like, that control or that, you know, unpressured situation... That said, if I have a camera on public land five miles away and it gets a five-year-old buck on it, I'm hunting that deer. Yeah. Sure. So it, it's, I want that success of, you know, I don't necessarily think it's to the extreme of deer farming. It's deer management or wildlife management or habitat management on a private property because, frankly, I like to see deer. I like to see turkeys. I want to see grouse. When it comes to the hunting yeah. side of it, I do want to kill the biggest deer. I don't care where he's at. If he's not on my property... And he's on public. I, I'll hunt him on public. Like it, it it's almost but, like a switch but off. Wouldn't and you on. rather kill him off of that food plot that you planted than on public? I, that's the control element I w- that I'm talking I would. about. That's where wow. you say. That's where you say. Well, it's more satisfying because I created the environment. I controlled it. He I did. don't know, man. I, I I've yes. never heard that. See, I've never heard it put that way, Jared. I to me, I would do the, if I had a chance of killing 140 on my own property with food plots and stuff. Versus a 140 on public, heavily pressured public. Man, I'd take the public land deer because he's the harder one to kill, right? Interesting. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's challenge. It involves more skill set because he's been shot at before, and he's 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 just a. It is an interesting sub. I mean, I think you're a minority. I've never heard anybody say that before. That's. I think you're a minority there too, John. I respect the answer. I I probably am. I like the answer. I like the answer. I I. I don't know if I could say personally that I would take that either because I know it's going to be harder. I know I'm not. I know I'm the other <laughs> way. I know, and I, it's not a. I don't think about it in terms of difficulty necessarily. While that may be true, I think about it like I put the work in, and he's yeah. doing what I said. It's that to me is gratifying. Just even to see fawns eating in a food plot. Yeah, that well, I that's what I'm saying. Like I, I like that aspect of the wildlife and seeing it when it. And it, it is really a switch on and off because, like, the moment I see a buck that I'm interested in, I don't care. I, obviously, I have to have permission to hunt the property, but I don't care if it's my property. I put 
uh, six months of work into or how about no public. permission? That makes it even harder. Yeah, it's even harder <laughs> at that point. Right? Let's raise the stakes here, yeah, gentlemen. I mean, so yeah, I mean that's that's. The, but it it is. It's a very it's a very different approach on it. Now posed with the situation of I have a, a, an exact same age, very close score buck on my place versus. Uh, public at this point in my life, frankly, I probably would kill the public one because my kids probably are going to hunt the easier one. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that's just yeah. being honest with myself. Is like the the kids are probably going to get a, a chance at the easier one than I am. Hence the dynamic, you know, uh, why I'm saying it's well, and that's why I ask about the Kansas thing because what's so interesting, like <clears throat> we all seek um, a weird satisfaction, right? At, at the culmination of this thing. We all seek a weird satisfaction of, of accomplishment. And so like when we go to Kansas, I don't care if we're hunting a lease or public or whatever, you kill a mature buck in Kansas. That is my, that is what I sat, set out to do. I don't care if he scores 125 or 185. Like, it, you know, I'd love to shoot a giant, but like if I shoot a mature buck in Kansas with my bow, that's what I set out to do. Same with Pennsylvania or Kentucky or wherever I'm hunting. But how that satisfaction individually is perceived per John, if he has access to a piece of property behind his house and there's a 140 or there's a, a 140 on public, he you probably get more satisfaction out of killing that public land deer. Without, without question. And, and also, you got to keep in mind when you're going on these out of state trips, there's a real high level of satisfaction because it's a short term hunt. Absolutely. Anytime you have a short term hunt and you get it done, uh, I don't care what state you're in. You go out on a one-week hunt and you kill a big buck on public land or some knock-on doors for permission stuff uh, in Kansas or Iowa or Missouri. You, that's a big sense of satisfaction because sure. yeah. you, you made it happen on a, in a week, mm-hmm. you know, seven days of hunting versus three to four months of hunting <laughs> in your home state. And on the as far as the best hunter in the country, it could be some dude that hunts public land in Pennsylvania you know, in the hill country and he hunts sure. ag property and he's killing two and a half and three and a half year olds every year in a heavily pressured areas. He yeah. could be the best hunter. I, There's, there is no way of putting the best Well, hunter. and I think that's what it comes I, down to. We, we always want to search for it. I just think because there's so many different dynamics. Yeah, we all know you, it's not. A, you can't name a person. You know good good hunters, but it's always with an asterisk because is it good because they kill it on a high-pressured public? Is it good because yeah. they're killing giant bucks in the Midwest every year? Like, <clears throat> There's always some undertone asterisk to it when you say they're a good hunter. Yeah. Yeah, and there's so many levels, okay? Are you going to say a guy is a great hunter because he can go hunting in an enclosure? And right. kill a hundred or two hundred incher every year and pay seventeen thousand dollars. Is he a good hunter because he did that? No. And then you go <laughs> next level down. The next level down is ultra managed property, like yeah. the TV guy, Don yeah. Higgins. You know, can Don Higgins go to PA and kill that two and a half or three and a half year old every year that that guy's been killing that is a phenomenal hunter? No, Don Higgins couldn't do that. He doesn't have that skill set. So he's not multifaceted hunter. Well, and let me throw this in. Let PA me throw- could probably go to Don's and do. See, every bit is good. That's an interesting point. Let let me throw this into what you just said right there, because this is what, like, the the thing that just throws a wrench in in all of it is, you know, bad hunters, like we say, kill big deer all the time. Like, there's a a element of luck that... That's why we we 100% exist. And so for us to say, whether it's Don or whoever you want to use, well, Don couldn't come to PA and kill this buck. Who knows? Little Amish girl with a crossbow did. So Don might get lucky also. I I said consistent. 
I didn't say. Oh, did once. you? Okay. Yeah. I did. Okay. The consistency. Well, is there you go. One. That's kind of the defense for what well, I suppose. And, and so, and here's the the thing that we haven't even addressed at all. Let's. Hmm. Yeah. Let's let's look. <laughs> let's let's look at this overall. Is what about the guy? And we talked. So we we talked to um, uh, Jake Elinger uh, a couple weeks ago. John, you know Jake. He's a Michigan guy. Was in QDMA oh. stuff. Big big bow hunter in Michigan as well. Um, okay. And so I think I know who he is. Yeah. And so when we're talking to Jake, you know, Jake got to a point in Michigan where you know uh, I don't know if it was in the late '70s, early '80s, where he basically started passing one and two year old bucks to try to kill a three year old buck, right? And and so how many great hunters are out there in Michigan, Pennsylvania, etc. Who, for, and I'm not putting this like egotistically in there, but I've killed a ton of two and three year old bucks consistently on public land in my life. I eventually said, you know what? I'm always four and older. That's my goal. Now there were several seasons. I didn't kill shit because my goal was four and older. Does that make oh, me or anyone else? Not a great hunter. Cause I could have killed three year olds all day long if I wanted to, but I chose not to. Mm. So yeah. now I'm not killing deer, but it's be not because I didn't have chances. It's because I set my standards higher. Well, totally what a great what that. a great opportunity to like look look and so you know we're looking out to, at an industry or at you know people to sure. say who's who's you know how am I rating myself as a hunter and so like I think what you just said right there is a great evidence to say maybe I should just look at myself and I figure think that's out why the I, only competition that you can have the only competition you can have is within yourself because that's the only time that the playing field will always be level. Um, Jake's Jake's got a really cool story because you know he evolved out of um, just a really high, a high pressure state where if it's brown is down that was that was the culture. It's Michigan, right? And there was I think it was there was very few deer at, at when he first started his hunting career. So to even see one was like that was crazy. He was a trapper and a small game hunter when he started. And so he now at this point in his life I think he's in his seventies. Seventy-eight. Yeah, seventy-eight. Oh wow! He's uh, that's not what I was thinking. Of I think so. Yeah, older, older gentleman, yeah. and he's 70. got he's got essentially a wall of it's pre. I think it was pre eighty-five is I think the time for eighty-five, eighty-seven. Pre him, you know, trying to like hold out for an eight, older age class of deer, trying to, uh, you know, and he's big on the he he was a QDMA guy like we said, so he was st starting to make right. modification. He was one of those guys that was sat down and for hours, you know, he would sketch out plans on his just obsess over his 160 acre property or whatever it is, all these tree plantings and stuff, and and that's where he finds joy. But so he's got this pre all of that wall with like a bunch of fork and horns <laughs> all over it, yeah. you know, and then he's got another wall after the fact that's like a trophy wall. You know, and people and might take that out of context, yeah. but they're big deer. Yeah, one yeah. anything from one fifteen to one fifty. Yeah, you know, and it's pretty cool so, to see that transition. But, but there's a guy, you know, and John, I'm sure you're even to that point because I mean, how many, how many two and three year olds do you probably pass in a given season? Oh, I yeah, I like you. I do. I pass up two and three. If they're not one twenty five, I typically won't. That's the goal. Now? Is that the goal now, John? Is it in Michigan is uh, one twenty five yeah. is is the goal? Yeah. In southern Michigan, my goal, which is more ag, and they they get bigger per age group, uh, it's one twenty five. In northern Michigan, one fifteen. Yeah, because I, I mean, mean this I've shot five year old bucks up here that are hundred five inches. Well, I was gonna say yeah. this buck was a seven and a half, and he scored one oh six. Yeah, and that's exactly. a, but that's a Pennsylvania used, mountain buck. In fact, he decreased probably twenty inches from the year before. Otherwise, if you're yeah, if you're hunting in an area 
there's no 125. You're wasting your time sitting in a tree. Well, yeah, I mean, so that deer, that deer fill dressed at like 235, you know? So, I mean, back, yeah, it's a big old buck. Back to your point on, the, on Jake, you know, I have done several seminars at QDM things just mm-hmm. talking about regular hunting. And, you know, a lot of QDM guys, they, have, they QDM their property, but they still don't know how to hunt. You know I, I, yeah. I would agree with that. Yes. And so I've done a lot of seminars at those and I've talked, you know, and then you would always be the cocky guys that come up. Well, you know, I'm QDMing and I'm, you know, these guys are in their seventies, late sixties. And, you know, I've shot six pulpy young bucks off my property and these were all in Michigan. By the way. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, well, how, how many years? So he's being cocky. Like he's this great hunter. I said, well, how many years have you been doing this QDM on your property? Uh, 10. And I've got six pulpy young bucks. Well, how many years did you bow hunt before you did your QDM property? Uh, 35. <laughs> well, how many young bucks did you kill during that 35 years before you did QDM property? None. None. Uh-huh. No. So, so that I put it in, I, I just put them back in their place. Okay. You're not hunting property that a normal person gets to hunt. Well, I am in the minority, Jared. I yeah. totally agree with you. And I get a lot of flack for that. I just deal with reality. Sure. And, uh, and, you know, like you guys, you guys can go to Kansas and you're going to see three and you're going to see 125s and 140 inches, whether oh, you kill them or not, yep. you know, uh, where you set your criteria, yep. you may come home empty. Sure. I totally agree with you, Jeremy. If you will come home empty, it's because your criteria was above mm-hmm. what, mm-hmm. you know, you could have killed something, maybe 125 and young. Yep. And then maybe the last day you say, okay, I'm going to drop my sure. thing down to 125 and then you don't get the opportunity. And I'm satisfied so, with yeah. that. Like I'm, I'm yeah, content driving home. Yeah. I'm content driving home, Absolutely. not having filled that tag, knowing that like the one that I wanted or, or a group of bucks that I was looking for just weren't there. Well, it's what you said there just a minute ago, I think is, is really interesting as it pertains to our conversation about like land management and manipulation yeah. versus just call it hunting skill. It, it seems like the the uh, implementation of QDM is almost a substitute or, you know, it, it lessens the hunting skill required because you're producing an right. environment. Like, it's not like before I had to go to a, a blank slate and just read what the deer are doing and take advantage of it. No, I've spent time and money to, to create a food plot or, you know, something that's going to funnel deer into a certain area. Thus, my hunting skill or ability to read is less, less is required of me to be able to kill those deer. That's why, you know, on, on the extreme end of it, you know, Mark Dury and Don Higgins can go out and sit in a box blind on a food plot and not read a lick of sign, never go into their woods and kill the biggest deer on the property. Right. So yeah. that, that's interesting. It's kind of, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I, totally agree with that. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It is an interesting thing because, uh, you know, again, I like Jared and probably a lot of guys listen, I get a lot of satisfaction out of planting a food plot and watching the deer and things like I, I do, you know, and almost in a way of in Pennsylvania, cause we can't bait, you know, my food plot behind my house is just a mu- as much a tool for my kids to hunt over as it is to keep deer at two and three year old protected or try to keep them protected on my property so the neighbors don't kill them, right? I mean, that's, yeah. I mean, it's almost as a defense technique. We talked about this with baiting in Ohio as like a, almost as a defense technique in some cases. Well, dude, not only that, I, this just popped into my head. Think about the same way that we don't, you know, not let kids shoot small bucks. 
you know, it's because we want to keep them interested. You know, we want them to have a fun. We have them to have success. You know, some guys could look at this as an excuse, but I think that's it could also be applied to guys, you know, hunting over corn piles or hunting with cross, but like something that oh, g- totally gives us an advantage. Like I was just thinking, cause there's, I've got a deer on my property right now that like, man, he might be, he might be killable. Like, you know, enough time, enough effort, you know, enough skill. You'd be able to read how he's coming out of this clear cut into a, a bean field and, and maybe kill him. Um, but like, so for my uncle, not that my strategy would be any different. Mm-hmm. Putting a corn pile out is not out of the question, you know, because, and I'm trying to think, you know, why is that? Like, we talk so much about should we bait, should we not bait? Like, it, it ultimately seems like we're, if I don't know if my uncle and I are at the same point here in our hunting careers, but it's like, man, that, that they're killing that buck off the corn pile. Like, we're making the assessment at this point, like right now, at that point in the season, you know, would be worth, making it easier with a corn pile like, it, 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 like the satisfaction would still would be there still get the satisfaction mm-hmm. man it, it's a, and that's a tough it's thing a complicated say. like yeah, decision there's so many levels to the corn thing because you can go out you can go out west where they allow yeah. you know putting out corn like you see on the tv shows deer always come in and they may be in a weed field and they always come in right to the tree oh, yeah. Obviously yeah they got corn in the weeds so that you can't see yeah. Well, John, we're and, we're friends you know, here, so I can say this, and I'm I'm not like uh, holier than thou. I bought seventy five hundred pounds of corn the other day. <laughs> <laughs> I, my barn is full. I need like a freaking. <laughs> I need like a silo. Okay. <laughs> you know, I bought some corn, man. It was thirteen bucks a day. I put it in my yard. I live in a lake. Yeah. A lake community, so I there's deer in my yard. My wife likes. It. I got it for eight from a neighbor, and at the end of it, he said, "Y'all got any flavoring?" <laughs> I was like, "Uh, no." He's like, <laughs> He gave me a little water bottle with no label on it that says apple. <laughs> Jeez. Is this good for 7,500? The UDM guys, they, yeah. they become good. I mean, they are becoming good at farming. You know, you know, sure, they yeah. put in the soil to make the crops grow and then you plant this and that and you go on your property, figure out what grows the best, what the deer like the best. And, and that's what you plant. So there's a lot of farming skills. So you, you become skilled at other things when you do. QDM. And there's an element of that. I like farming element. I just think that the, the, I don't want to say like true hunters, but a hunter will then make a flip of a switch to say, okay, where is the opportunity for me to achieve my goal? And, and the, where I'll get with that, John is I don't think that many of these guys who hunt solely manicured properties would be willing to not hunt those properties and go find a deer on public or elsewhere if they don't have a deer that meets their criteria, right? So if my criteria is to hunt a four and a half year old buck, if I don't have one on my, my managed property, I'm going to go and start placing cameras on public or, or elsewhere to find a four and a half year old buck for me to hunt this year. Not You're gonna lose nec- a lot of cameras if you do that. Well, yeah, maybe I do, but <laughs> but, but yeah, I am. my goal is to, I agree with that. where I think some people I, I would and I think we talked about this. Like, if you don't have a four and a half year old buck in your area, then like you have to reset your realistic goals or be ready to not shoot anything oh, this year. Can- the Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Stealth Cam. Dude, where would we be without our cell cams? I would definitely be divorced at this point. <laughs> yeah, I hear that. I mean, the fact is, is I spent more time checking cameras than I actually did hunting prior to cell cameras. Now, at least my wife can enjoy me being in the comfort of my own home, buried in my phone, checking those pictures. Yeah, 100%. And dude, when it comes to 
uh, trail cameras and definitely cell cameras. Reliability is, I think, the number one thing that we're looking for. Stealth Cam just has a long reputation of reliable cameras, and ultimately that is the most important thing to us. They have to work. In terms of reliability, there's not a better camera on the market than Stealth Cam, whether you're talking about the Fusion X, the Reactor, or the DS4K Transmit. And most of them are under 200 bucks. Stealthcam.com. Check them out. Pertaining to your, yeah. your goals, John, so where you're at in Michigan, it's it's 125, uh, and, you know, obviously situational. My my uncle and I, who I bring up on the podcast all the time, my uncle is one of my, my biggest influences for getting into bow hunting and, and wanting to pursue big animals. But even today, after hunting together for years and years, we've got some pretty stark differences in how we look at, you know, deer we should target, frankly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, his, and he's, you know, 58 i think he's 58 and so he is very much interested in the score very much it sounds maybe more in line yeah. with your thinking you know yeah, he's I'm like a score guy not a not an age not guy. an age guy so when yeah. presented with the opportunity i think 10 times out of 10 he would rather shoot a 150 inch three-year-old than a 140 inch four-year-old um and i am i'm i'm on the other side of it i i prefer an older age class of animal. You know, I would rather shoot a lower scoring. Well, but you're saying that because you want that three-year-old to make it to four to be bigger. Right. That's where it gets interesting because if if it's a 170-inch four-year-old or a 150-inch five-year-old, I'm probably going to shoot the 170-inch four-year-old because yeah. there's a point yeah. where age becomes, it's it's mature. It's it's no longer He's relevant. He's not going to get a lot bigger. Yeah. yeah. And whether yeah. it's four or five I agree or with six. That. I'm yeah. I totally agree with that. Yeah, there's just so many levels and all of this. So, well, stuff. so what are your thoughts on that, John? Would you, you know, how does age? It depends on where I was hunting. If I was hunting in an area where I knew that deer was going to live in another year, if I was hunting out west, yeah, I'd probably pass on the younger buck with a higher potential. Or if I was managing property, there's no question. I'm not worried about that deer getting killed by anybody else. Yeah. So he's going to be there next year unless coyotes get him or something happens, EHD or CWD. Um, so, yeah, I'm going to definitely do exactly what you're talking about and let yeah. that deer grow another year. But it, where I'm hunting in Michigan, you can't let a decent deer go because the odds of him getting killed are really high here at gun season. I see. I guess the, I, I guess the question is, and stick with Michigan where you're hunting primarily, does, does age bear any relevance on your desire to shoot an animal or not? None. Absolutely zero. Wow. I'll be perfectly honest with you. None. Yeah. It's, it's all about antlers. Well, I was say, where I'm at, yeah. They're not, I can't say that deer's going to be there next year. For your, yeah, for your style of hunting, John, being <clears throat> a lot of high pressured areas, I think that's, you don't have a choice. I yeah, mean, exactly. I don't have a choice. It, because the odds of that deer making it are pretty. Whereas strong. you're passing that deer because you think you will make it. Well, and those odds are such a, such a gray area that's where i that's where we yeah. have conflict is that my uncle yeah. will be you know and, and i fully support where he's coming from he'll listen to this podcast at some point but like you know i think we convince ourselves that he will or he won't get shot it, it's easy to let that influence whether or not we'll shoot that animal you know yes. so in my defense you know i want to believe man if i kill him He's surely not going to make it. Like, there's always a chance. There's all, and I want to hold true to that. Maybe yep. it's because I have, just in terms of our age, and maybe I have more years ahead of me type of deal. But, And he is more like, 
dude, that thing's getting shot. Like there's a 90% chance it's not, it's not going to make it. I'm going to kill that animal. And so we, we have conflict there to say we should, or we shouldn't, you know? Yeah. I've had that. I've had that discussion with a lot of people. You're absolutely right. If you kill it, it's guaranteed. He ain't going to make it another year. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Well, you, you know, and it's one of those, like, it's one of those staple statements that I could see somebody hating. It's like, you can't kill him from the couch. Yes, but well, I mean, I, I'll be <laughs> I'll be the first to say at some at some point I changed to that four year old status, but I was probably closer to John's me- mentality when I hunted a lot of public land, uh, of which you know I, I was looking for probably at that time 110 or 115 inch deer and bigger. Like I mean, you know, it was it at one point when I was in college, it was a legal buck, right? I was just looking for legal bucks with my bow to kill. Uh, it it. <laughs> You're doing it right, Jeremy. You're doing the progression. That's the natural progression of becoming, in my opinion, a good deer hunter. Mm-hmm. You know, when I started bow hunting, I'd shoot a button buck one. I'd shoot a doe one. Yeah. And I graduated up to a, a mature does and year and a half old bucks. Yep. And then I got two and a half year old bucks. And then I went to three and a half. So I kept progressing my skill set. Whereas if I just shot a deer, I'd be done that for two days of season. And I, you know, I just kept wanting to up my challenges and that's kind of exactly what you're talking about. I'm not knocking anybody for this, but we've brought this up before and I know people give us shit on it essentially, but like at some point you have to challenge yourself. Like that's anything in life, but, but let's just focus on hunting here. Like at some point, if I go out with my bow and I kill a, a four corn or a one-year-old six-point every year for 10, 15 years in a row, do you not want to challenge yourself? Like, Absolutely, that, and, yeah. and, and, I, and I don't question this yeah. as, like, just on a hunting side. I question it as an overall life goal of, like, if you never challenge yourself at this point or you're comfortable and satisfied every year killing that four-point, you better check yourself in the mirror. I totally agree. 100%. Yep. It's, it's so just was, a natural yep. thing, like to improve as a human, to improve as a, a husband or a father or a boyfriend or whatever it might be at your job. Like at some point, yeah. you have to challenge yourself and you will fail. You will eat tag soup. You will not be successful, but that's only part of the process. You're never afraid. If you're always afraid of failure, you're never going to get good at anything. And my fear, John, in this society, and this is why like, I, I wrestle with this with my kids all the time, is that we are very quickly approaching where everybody wants it easy and nobody wants yeah. to fail. Um, yeah. You hear people, and I, it, this is not to pick on people, but you hear people that have a failure in their life and they literally mentally break down. like They fall apart as a human brain, being. Well, when I failed... I learned from it and said, shit, don't do that again. How do we beat it? Well, t- take that and relate it to what we're saying about the like the Northeast, for example, versus the Midwest. Like, easy is overrated, you know, yes. because if you're only experiencing big box fretting all the time, you know, it, it just becomes like you expect that, you know, and you just, it's just what it is. And if that gets taken away from you, it's like it's. And where does that satisfaction go? Like, at some point, if every season I hunt and I see multiple four and five-year-olds, multiple booners, and I kill a booner every where, where do I go from there? I can't just yeah. say, well, cool. I'm only going to kill 200s. This exactly. It's a, it's a unicorn. Exactly. Well, and this is, this is what's cool about deer hunting is I think it, and I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's to, to, to me, the pursuit of a specific animal and the fact that each one of them has a different personality and stuff. That seems like kind of an unending 
pursuit. John, does that uh, fall into your hunting style in Michigan at all? I know it because- has. It has. Uh, I'm sorry. Finish your statement. Well, uh, just because, you know, you talk about the, the ability not to purposely pass, but obviously you don't get an opportunity at every buck you hunt. So do you start to build history with a specific deer that becomes that individual, you know, competition, you against a specific deer? Uh, there are times where I will, in the last few years, I'll get pictures of a specific deer, like the one I got last year up here one of the two i got last year in michigan i was targeting that specific deer typically when i'm doing all my scouting and location prep i'm prepping locations based on deer sign and why deer mature bucks should be in this area and in this specific spot Mm -hmm. so typically i'm not targeting a individual deer okay i have in the past and i'm pretty good at it mm-hmm. you know miles keller was like that i don't yeah. know if you guys remember miles i remember keller, miles he had a job where in the 80s he was driving around he'd see big bucks out in fields and he'd get permission because it was a lot easier back then and he was excellent probably the best man i've ever known that i've read about that was good at targeting a specific animal just randomly not on a specific piece of managed property with no competition just random he would just see a deer and physically go get permission try to figure that deer out in a short period of time and kill that deer and he was really really good at it Mm. i on the other hand am a little bit different there's times when i know somebody will tell me there's a monster deer in this spot so i'll go target that deer but usually i'm just hunting places where big mature bucks in a pressured scenario would be you know back in the heavy security cover I hunt in bedding areas a lot. Everything is security cover oriented. And I would assume, John, that some of those places fail to produce, right? They just, they don't have a buck of the caliber that you're looking for. They either don't have one I'm looking for or the timing's not right and I'm not there on the right days where you go and find my tree. So that's a scenario too, because I never overhunt my spots. And a lot of times I'm sure they go buy it when I'm not there. Sure. I, I think, John, what you're saying, in my opinion, depends a lot on time of year. Like, Early and yeah. early and late, I, yeah, I assume you'll agree early with this. Not. Early, early and late in the season, it's very much, mm-hmm. you know, patternable. But it's you really can't beat a good spot during the rut. Uh, yeah, you're right. You yep. know, that's why free, in Kansas, free ruts in my favorite. That's like what. So in Kansas, in granted, it is Kansas, but we go during the rut, and that affords us the opportunity to just hunt good spots. We don't have a specific, I, the buck's coming out here, he's doing this. We don't know. We know what a good spot is because of terrain, topography, mm-hmm. and they end up there. They all end up there at one and point And I would time. assume that you're probably more efficient at hunting the deer of the caliber you're looking for now, John, because of trail cameras, right? In the 80s and yeah. 90s. Well, that helps big time. It was, yeah, it was purely sign. And you're basically saying, well, there should be a big buck in here, or there could be a big buck in here based on the sign, but you don't know. You have no idea. We got lots of locations and we have a camera at every location and you hunt according to what you see on, on yep. the camera. Yeah. So it's uh, it's just totally different. It's an interesting totally. thing. Yeah. Totally. I mean when you when you start to look at kind of the the situations and, and again it's that satisfaction, which everybody's different on that. You know, I, there's definitely a time in the season, probably mid October, I would say, when scrapes <laughs> are cranking. That like I just go for probably I don't know eight to ten mile walk on on deep public <clears throat> land and find scrapes and put cameras up just because out of curiosity just just because I want to know like I tell you a lot you know there could be a big buck and if there is you know what I'll go and hunt them if I'm not tagged out but 
that everybody should have that like time frame in their mindset that says, I'm going to go and try something new. I'm going to go in a new area. I'm going to look at new sign because even if you hunt a very, very well-managed property, I do not think that there is any substitute for woodsmanship and being able to understand deer sign. I don't care how good the property is. I don't care if you just want to go to a box blind and hunt a food plot. It, it's still understanding woodsmanship and, and how deer react and behave and the sign they leave behind is a critical skill. Maybe you don't use it this year, but sure as hell you're going to use it at some point in your hunting career. And, and one thing you mentioned, uh, you know, going during the rut, you mentioned that, Jared. We go post-rut in Kansas because I suffer in Michigan with everybody else. You know, I like to suffer with all the people <laughs> who have to hunt public lands and have to work hard at it. And so I don't leave Michigan until gun season, yeah. you because know, I don't gun. So 15th of November. So we go to Kansas, we leave on the 16th, and Kansas has such a late gun season, just like yeah, December. Uh, Ohio does and yeah, Iowa does. Mm-hmm. So we can hunt the post-rut yep. in Kansas before the gun season. What do you so call it? What do you call it? Same time frame, John? The time frame we have. Uh, our hunting starts getting really good around the 22nd, 23rd of November. Yeah. So the, the peak rut's over. Most of the, major- the vast majority of the does have been bred. And now those big bucks actually, because when we go during the peak rut, which we, when we get out there and we start hunting about the 19th, because the first two days we do yep. the prep location, the 19th, 20th, 21st, we see a lot of 130s, you know, 135s, lots of them. Um, but then once it gets the 22nd, 23rd, 24th, we start seeing the monsters. So he's they're even a week no longer us. right at the end of no our trip. Yeah, yeah, they're no longer doed up, and now their testosterone is still extremely high, and they they want to keep breeding. So now they physically have to go out and search for those late estrus does, because typically during a peak rut, those mature bucks are breeding those in heavy security cover and not moving a lot yeah. during daylight hours. That's why you see all the little bucks searching around and moving around. So they're looking for a loose doe. So I think I think we're either a week ahead of you or we usually, it overlaps. We always leave um, the Friday of Veterans Day. That's that is just that's the day that we always. And then play. we're th- we're there through seven days. like the Saturday before Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, what day? What day is that of the year? I'll tell you right now. So we are leaving. We find we find the twenty third through the twenty seventh. I think this year we're there the 12th to the 18th. So you're there over Thanksgiving? You guys are there peak run. Yeah, we're there over Thanksgiving. Over Thanksgiving, okay. So yeah, we'll be there like the 13th through the 19th type Mm -hmm. of deal. Um, And what we've seen is like, uh, I I don't think we've, granted you wouldn't see it, but like it didn't, uh, it seems like what has a a way bigger impact is the the temperature. Yeah, the weather. You know, it seems like when it's cold, they're, they're going. You know, we see a lot of scraping activity, a lot of cruising activity. Um, I guess it could be hit or miss, but on trips that we have that it's warm, like I think 2020, we, was it 2020? Yep. And it was hot, and I mean, they just shut off completely. It was, ter- it was terrible. Yeah. My, my son went, uh, my son Chris, when he was with me, when he was around, he, uh, he went on an Iowa hunt by himself in was 80 degrees in three days he saw no bucks mm. dropped out to 35 degrees one night next day he saw 11 bucks yeah 
The Hunter Podcast is brought to you by Hoyt Archery. Dude, where would we be without our Hoyt bows? Probably shooting crossbows. Or, or a Matthews. <laughs> yeah. One and the same. Yeah. But in all seriousness, we love being Hoyt guys because you stand out. When you're in this room full of other people that shoot these other types of bows, I feel like the Hoyt guys just stick out. Dude, it's just a legit bow. I mean, th- th- especially that carbon riser, man. I mean, I-, I know that they've got several other aluminum lines as well. But for, for me, I'm shooting that RX-5 uh, in the carbon model. They've since come out with the RX-7. And uh, I can't tell you how much I love being a Hoyt guy amongst a C4 of Matthews guys. So we're out there, I think, pr- proving them wrong, shooting 80 pounds and uh, you know, killing stuff. Hey, man, if you want to get serious, get Hoyt. Okay, so one of the things I wanted to talk about, just because it's been brought up and Jared and I don't know a lot about it, so uh, we figured maybe you, you definitely know more than we do, uh, is the Mitch Rumpelabuck. And so um, if people don't know what this is, they probably will, and they see the picture. Mitch has got like a big black beard, and there's this giant wide Michigan buck that um, maybe, I, you know, I would say is probably one of the most debatable bucks slash pictures. Um why? In, in what, what's, what's debatable about it? Well, I mean, is it is it real? Did he kill it? Is it legal? Was it a high fence? Like, and that's where I'm going to cue John in because I don't know okay. much more than that about it. Well, there was there'd be no way it would be a high fence because somebody would have a picture of it. Sure, the rancher. Sure, obviously. Um, I I've been a scorer since 1985 in Michigan, and uh, uh, Mitch is actually was the scoring chairman. For a lot of those years, he actually signed my card wow. know, when I became a scorer. Hmm. So I know Mitch very well. I've done seminars with Mitch at the Lansing Center before at our Deer Expo. Um, Mitch is a different type of bird. Um, I was—I can remember I was at a show when I repped for Golden Eagle Bows, which you, you guys remember yep. those? Yep. Mm-hmm. Got bought by Bear and went defunct. Yep. I remember um, going. I was at it. Yeah, I was at the Deer Expo, and Mitch took me back in the back room. He had this big white lockbox, and he opened it up. He unlocked it, and he pulled out the shed, and it was a hundred. Or it was a ninety-eight inch, one-sided five, typical five. Oh, it looked like the Jordan, damn. which the Jordan Buck was the world record for years and years and yep. years on with a gun. Yeah, it looked just like that, and. When he pulled it out of the box, you know, I could immediately tell that he had put something on the antler, colored it, because you the antler was weather checked sure. big time. Sure. You could tell this antler had laid outside probably in a Midwestern state, a Kansas, an arid state for a couple of years. It was that weather checked. And out there they don't get eaten by the mice and squirrels and stuff. You see some of those on the on the table here that we've picked up many, many years yeah. after they were shed. Yeah. Yeah. And you could tell that he was he was trying to tell me that this was a two day old shed. He said I had pick, I saw this buck two days before I found this shed. Red flag. Well I yeah. immediately, immediately knew that was a lie. John's got a spider and sense did on Did you now. say something? No, I didn't. Why not? <laughs> he was already in a back uh, room. I, I would have been like, what do you mean? It's like clearly glossy. Like, what's the deal with this thing? I, I, I just didn't say anything. He had it colored like it was brown, like it was a, a fresh drop, but you could see the weather checking underneath big time. Weird. I don't know. I just thought, well, Mitch, whatever blows up your skirt, man, he wants yeah. 
tell me he's got a world record buck in his where he's hunting, that's fine. So anyway, if you if this buck would have had a matching side, that would have been a 196. And then if it would have had a 20-inch spread, that would have been 216. Mm-hmm. World record. World record. Milo Hansen's 214. Yeah. Okay, the buck Mitch supposedly shot was also 216, 30 and a half inch inside spread. So immediately, you know, things like that raise a flag up. Because I've scored so many deer. Yeah, he's lying to you. It's obviously so a red flag. Yes, from ranches. And uh, I just kept that in the back of my mind. And I'm like, huh, Mitch had the state record in Michigan, 182, 12 point. And now it, I could mentally say he's trying to go for a world record somehow, you know, because this buck obviously would be a new world sure. record if it had a side and it's going to be there next year. So nothing happened the next year. And then like three years later, he kills this 216, 14 point. Now, initially I was giving him the benefit of the doubt because I knew one of the guys that actually handled the rack and said the rack was real. And it, it was that but a seven he, by seven, John, is what you're saying? It was a seven by seven. Okay. Correct. So he didn't like use, a rake on each side. It so wasn't he, junk. It was a clean seven by seven. So he didn't use the five point that you had seen several years no. previous. No. Oh, no, no. It was totally different. Totally different. This okay. thing was really wide, 30 and a half inches. The other one, if it would have had a matching side, would have been about a 20 inch inside. Spread. Okay. Okay. But, he, but that's two world record bucks from Grand Traverse County which is all sandy soil for sure. You're hard pressed to see a buck in that County. That's over 150 inches in the record. Is that Traverse? Okay. Is that Traverse city area? Yes. Grand, yeah. Grand Traverse County. So you're up there. So, I'm sorry. You're up there North. No, yeah. He's way up in the Northeast corner of the state. It's all sand over there. Yeah. Sand dune. Oh, I yeah. mean, no minerals in the soil. Um, yeah, I think the top buck in that state with, or in that area with a bow is 150 inches wow. over all the history of Michigan. Okay, mm. so now he's supposedly found the shed of a world record, potential world record buck, and now he's supposedly killed a world record buck. Well, when he got the state record buck, which he killed in 1982, there wasn't really any scrutiny that went with that. It just got thrown in the record. You know, it's just a state state record. And back then, you know, they they weren't critiquing everything like they do now. Now they stick a microscope up your ass <laughs> and want to know everything about it. So. <laughs> So they wanted to to confirm this. They wanted to X-ray the antlers, and he refused to X-ray the antlers. Hmm. So when you X-ray antlers, that can tell you if there's any if the antlers have been altered, sure, and not pure bone, because there were differences in the X-ray of the bone. Yeah, he refused to do that. Everything he did thereafter was a negative to that deer being real. And I've talked to world class taxidermists they can alter antlers while they're on the deer sure and you would never ever know it. we just had antlers by klaus do uh fix a shed for us who is a world-class you know <clears throat> taxidermist and and you would, ne- man. you would never know the difference it's you klaus would never think name? that it, um or first name no, it's Klaus Labricht. 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 Yeah, yeah. He, he does like all of the uh Kings of Bucks and Bass yeah, Pro. All the stuff you see, that. like he does all of them. He makes all the replicas. Oh, okay. He's yep, the man. Yep. But so, that's, that's the so kind you're of you're aware. Yeah. So you're aware, you know, and obviously that's, in my personal opinion, that's exactly what happened is he had these antlers altered 
And he did not think he was going to get a microscope up his yin yang to get it entered as a, a world, you know, a world yeah. record. Uh, so anyway, then this is way, way deep. That's all right. That's there where we want to be. There was a guy that had killed a 196 inch buck in Jackson County, Michigan. Craig Calderon was his name. Okay. And that was going to go in and be the new state record buck. This is before this is before that big buck. Okay? Yeah, Mitch's buck. This was in the early '90s, so that was going to be the new state record, typical with a bow, 196 inches. So Mitch didn't like that too awful much. Well, it come to find out, Craig Galderone had several poaching, and not really poaching, but violations for shining after midnight with a high-powered mm -hmm. rifle in his car. So he had that buck taken out of the record book. Now Mitch's is the state record again. So by the time Mitch showed everybody this big wide buck, Craig Calderon had bought this little trailer and he was taking it around to all of these shows, the Ohio Deer Expo, Michigan Deer Expo. And he had bought the rights to the Milo Hansen buck. So in this trailer, he had his 196-inch buck. He had the Milo Hansen replica in there. And it was he was charging, I don't know, two or five bucks to go through this trailer at these shows. And he had a bunch of big antlers in there for yeah. people to see. And the, and the current world record buck. Well, because Mitch wouldn't get his antlers x-rayed and he also from what i understand and i don't have solid proof of this but his cape got spoiled all the meat got spoiled so they couldn't do any dna testing because they can do dna testing and tell if that buck was from that area huh he would not do that red flag <laughs> and then but he kept saying you know I've got the world record buck, even though it was not legitimately entered as the world record buck because he wouldn't go through the steps to do so. So Greg Galderone, because he was charging people to see the world record buck, he told Craig, or he told Mitch, you know, I'm going to sue you if you keep telling everybody you got the world record buck because I'm, I'm monetarily profiting off of the Milo Hansen buck as the legitimate world record. Mm -hmm. So, Mitch actually signed some paperwork that he would never enter his buck as long as the Calderon, you know, had that deal with Milo Hansen buck. And, and the first year Mitch shot that buck at the ATA show, his pictures were everywhere. You know, he shot it in the fall that next January, that yep. next January, month or so later, his pictures were all over that show. Everybody was excited. We got a new world record bow kill typical. And uh, then once all this other stuff happened and he wouldn't get it entered, he wouldn't get it scored, he wouldn't x-ray the antlers. Uh, the next year, the only guy that had Mitch's picture at the ATA show was Kevin Cray. Now, Kevin Cray owned Hogs Unlimited, which was Synthetic Sense. Mm -hmm. You familiar with that? Yep. Is that, that, the, goes hog back is that the Hog and Sons things that we see? No, I think Hogs Unlimited eventually became Buck Fever, Fever Synthetics. It might be. I don't know. I know it was Hogs Unlimited, but Kevin was kind of a shady character, too. He ended up going to jail. After Mitch wouldn't do all this entering and stuff, and then Craig Calderon was going to sue him, and he signed this paperwork, and 
Mitch lost all of his credibility. So in the next five years, he killed four bucks in Michigan, all 25 and a half inch to 28 and a half inch inside spreads. What? Now, if you guys have, you heard me. 25 and a half inch inside spread was the narrowest. 28 and a half inch was the widest. This is Mitch and killing them. Yes. And keep in mind, the one that he shot as the, what he was claiming as the record was 30 and a half inches. So I'm talking to Tira O'Brien, which is a female, T-I-R-A. She's dead now. But she was the scoring chairman for CBM. And I was talking to her on the phone, you know, multiple years after this whole buck thing had kind of been put to bed. And uh, I said, well, I was talking to her on the phone about something. And uh, we got on the Mitch thing. And she said, oh, yeah, I believe that was, the, you know, legitimate and stuff. And I said, you do realize he's killed four more bucks since then that were 25 and a half inch spread or bigger. She said, yeah, yeah, I'm aware of that. I said, do you know how rare a 20 inch inside spread buck is? <laughs> and she said, yeah, they're kind of rare. I said, kind of. are you on your computer? And she said, yes. And this, I mean, just like I'm talking to you guys, are you on your computer? And she said, yeah. I said, uh, can you look up how long would it take you to find out how many bucks in Michigan, gun, bow, pickups, whatever, have been entered into the Michigan record book for all time that are over 25 inches? And she looked it up, took her like 10 seconds, and it was eight. Eight bucks. All time in Michigan, gun, bow, and pickups. Okay, how many are over 26 inches inside spread? Four. And then I said, how many were over 27 inches inside spread? Zero. So you're telling me that in a county that's not known for big bucks because it's such sandy soil that there's a bow hunter that has killed four bucks plus that 30 and a half inch inside spread buck. So basically five bucks that were over 25 and a half inch inside spread over this many years with a bow. And there hasn't been any entered during the whole history of C- CBM that are over 27 and a half inch. I think there was two or three that were over 27 inches. Crazy. And there's never been one entered over 27 inches in the history of the state. <laughs> uh, so I, then it kind of got, she started thinking about it. Yeah, it is kind of strange. I said, yeah, we're talking six or seven years, killing five bucks between 25 and a half and 30 and a half inches. And I mean, that's how, not insane. That's impossible. How is Mitch? Like, I mean, obviously after the first Mitch one, al- Mitch is alive. I don't know. Is Mitch still alive, John? Yeah, he's still alive. You know, what's he doing? Is he like? I have no idea. Probably still killing thirty-inch wide bucks. <laughs> Maybe we can learn. No, something. I, no, I, I, I never hear about his hunting anymore. Well, I mean, and that's he was a very I'm... knowledgeable guy. He, what? When I did the seminars with him, he. He seemed more into social behavior than sure. actual hunting skill sets. Mm. And I he's from Missouri. And when he was 14, I think he was 14 years old, he'd kill a Missouri state record. But oh, I think boy. he had family that had an enclosure. So mm. if you're asking me, I, I would bet my house and my life that that was Definitely not. Is that your wife or your life? <laughs> my my wife. <laughs> you know, what's so crazy about that is, is like you said, if for, you know, 
before that buck happened, you would, yeah, maybe Mitch was a strange bird, but you would have known him as like, you know, a, a decent hunter, an authority. I mean, obviously nobody questioned the 12 point, which now probably should be in question. Um, and then You're after that, right. that giant and all the controversy around it, what would drive somebody to then try to pull it over four more times, basically? Well, he wasn't trying to pull it over four more times. He was just trying to earn his Michigan credibility back in my opinion. Yeah. So he wasn't he wasn't showing those deer to anybody other than people in Michigan that were with CBM and scores and stuff. It's, I, I think he was extremely embarrassed about the whole big lie. Wow. Yeah. Oh, and and when he showed me that first shed out of that lockbox and it was all weather checked and it would have been a new world record, I immediately knew, hmm, this guy's going. Yeah. I just Mitch, Mitch was he's just a different he he had been arrested for some other stuff. We worked for the post office and <laughs> those postmen fraudulent checks. <laughs> yeah, you know, and a lot of this stuff uh voter I fraud. Know, <laughs> sure, but some of this is secondhand information, but I've seen pictures of some of the twenty five and a half and twenty six and a half inch bucks yeah. he shot after the big one yeah and also when when you look at that picture of that buck the big one i mean to me those brow times are way well yeah it doesn't look it doesn't look out. natural i mean that that's the thing that anybody that sees the mitchell on polo buck looks at it and just says i mean it, it just it doesn't look natural like i mean i've seen people have seen pictures of milo hansen's buck if you've ever seen it in real life like the replica and stuff it is a giant that yes. that that Milo Hansen buck is a giant. There is a reason that it has stood the test of time since what not, early '90s was when he killed that John yeah. Milo. Hansen? Yeah. I mean, so you're talking thirty plus years. You know, there's a reason that that has stood the test of time. Is that it is a ginormous mainframe ten point, about as clean as you could possibly get with a huge frame, huge. Yeah, and um, he's just another Milo Hansen was just a guy that was a deer just hunter. another guy. He, he just, you know, Mitch was a guy that was always wanting, you know, credibility. Yeah, he was always wanting to further his credibility in the in the country as far as a deer hunter. He had it in Michigan for mm -hmm. years and years. Yep. Um, and now I think he wanted to step up to that next level and he was willing to do whatever it took. And people still do it. I mean, it wasn't too long ago that um, Spook Span killed that buck in in. Kansas and took it and said he claimed it in Tennessee as a Tennessee state record. Um, yeah. You know, and I'm sure there's other guys that have, well, we just talked about the guy who killed it in the high fence in Indiana and tried to pass it off. And I mean, and that's a Lacey Act violation, right? That's a federal law break in, in those cases when you're moving those deer across state lines. And so, but it, it's just, um, again, I think it goes back to that inner competition or that comp like, to that point, I mean, that's a that's a disease to that point. To, to feel like you have to go and do these things to prove your worth in a community, it, it, it's uh, you're, you're hunting for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Well, yeah. Th there are quite a few, <clears throat> a few of those guys, just like we talk about, you know, TV personalities that have gotten, you know, maybe they did love hunting at one point in time, but they got distracted by it's a business for them and, that, you know, they have to produce. I think in the same way, guys can get caught up in the, in the scorebook side of things where they're like, well, I just, you know, I get my my fulfillment, my my notoriety, you know, from being in the book for having killed a certain deer. And if they can find a way to. Well, I think people do that manipulate. now. I mean, look, look at many of these shows, whether it's TV, YouTube, whatever. 
how many people say, well, I killed this six-year-old buck. No, that's a three-year-old, like clearly. Like, you know, or I killed this 155. No, that deer's not an inch over 140. You know, and, and without anybody laying the hands on it to actually verify, because these guys aren't submitting them to the books or anything. Like, it right. just, and, and that, we, we've talked about the quality assurance check and content. Even, even though I don't think everything was accurate that came on hunting TV back in the day, the fact was, is there was still a quality assurance check when it hit the network. With YouTube and anybody being able to upload, there is misinformation delivered every day in the hunting community. Yep. Here's a good picture of a seven-year-old buck. Uh, what? No, that deer's three clearly <laughs> or younger, you know, and it, and for, and, and, and I don't know if the guys say it because they want to convince you they're, they're hunting this like majestic seven-year-old buck or no, if they do they, it because they frankly just don't know. They want it to be the case is what it is. And it's bad because, Everybody, yeah, I, you know, Deer hunting is such an egotistical activity. Yeah. It is super, it drives your hunting or your ego. Yeah. Now, there's a lot of hunters in the country that are not ego driven and they kill nice bucks and they keep it to themselves. They don't say squat to anybody. Um, I, I definitely have an ego on the deer hunting side, um, but I try to educate hunters. I'm not out there trying to brag about what I've killed. I try to educate hunters to make them better hunters. Um, so, you know, I can remember, we've got a magazine here called Woods and Water, mm -hmm. and there was a guy on the cover, I think it was two years after we had Bowling for Losing Crossbow, and he was a scorer. He was a CBM scorer, and he shot 182-inch buck, typical, and he had it on the cover of Woods and Water. It was going to be the new state record of crossbow kill, because obviously we hadn't even had a crossbow right. category until two years prior. And so his picture's on the cover, and he had one other buck with a bow is like 117 inches in the honorable mention part of CBM. And come to find out, he shot that buck in an enclosure with a muzzle over. Holy the cow. The guy that owned the enclosure actually called the president of Commemorative Bucks of Michigan and said, you know what? I, I own this enclosure. Enclosures get a bad rap all the time, and I don't like it but the guy that's on the cover of that magazine that said he put that buck in the cbm he shot that in my enclosure with a muzzle loader i have a picture of him with that buck and i have pictures of that buck in my enclosure mm -hmm. so i know the president of cbm it was john neville and he actually had to go and kick the guy out of the book and go to his house and he had to write a disclaimer just like i want to have a disclaimer to everything i said about mitch yeah. or kevin gray yeah. Um, some of that may be secondhand information. Most of it's personal information. I know 100% to be true. Yeah. Um, just so I don't get sued though. I want to lay a disclaimer <laughs> to that. Well, yeah. <laughs> and I mean, sued. you know, and again, it goes back to that satisfaction. Like the fact that these guys are doing that kind of stuff, it is an empty void that you will never feel was, was satisfaction, right? If, if we go out there and you're we fake, shoot, you're fake. yeah, we shoot a four-year-old yeah, buck or we shoot a, a high pressured public land whitetail, like there is a satisfaction we feel and we get to feel every year that it's a great feeling. These guys have a void that will never, ever be tamed. It just, yeah. it just won't. And that's why they do these things that are, that are so wrong and they know it. It's just, they can't help themselves. They're trying to figure out how to, how to change their, their feeling in their life. And, and it won't work. It's a shortcut. How to get a bit more prestige. No. Yeah. Crazy. I think, uh, no, that we have to go all the way down this route, but 
you touched on it there briefly. And Jeremy and I have been talking a lot about like um, trying to get to, to the root of inherently like what drives us to try to kill the biggest, oldest, highest scoring, like most sought after animal, whatever it is, you know, deer or, or fish. Like, dude, I just think it's like primal. Like it's in our <laughs> DNA, like, you know. Oh, without a doubt. You know, think back just to ancient civilization, like for us, just early <clears throat> Americans, they were Native Americans, you know, not that I, you know, was there for this, but I can imagine because I know how I feel. Dude, when they went and killed buffalo or whatever, whatever they were hunting, they came back and it was like the, you know, the best warrior killed the biggest one and they wanted to show it off and they want, sure. you know, they wanted the notoriety that came from that. And dude, there's definitely something, you know, primal or it's, it's in our DNA as human. Yeah. I well, want to say men, but maybe, maybe it's women too. But there also was an ideal, uh, an ideology, uh, ideology there of like sustainability, in that like the Native Americans needed to hunt for food, but they knew that they couldn't abuse the resource. Right when, when frankly right. the white men showed up, they abused the resource, and that's why most things were extirpated in in the United States from a wildlife side. And so those Native Americans knew that they, if they harvested that biggest, oldest, more mature male in the buffalo herd or whatever, there were younger ones that would then grow to fill that void. You're saying that came from the Native Americans? Yes. I don't know if that's well, true. And you're talking when, when the American, I mean, when the white people came in and they started just killing stuff, that was called market hunting. Yeah. And it was, they, they, expert, killing animals they killed everything. There was no management. They, yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah they were just right. killing to sell, to mm -hmm. make money for profit. It's funny, my, and, uh, my reference for that is like movies. and Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, but and, no, and that's one that's thing it. that when hunting actually started happening in the late 1800s, and they were trying You're to right. get rid of that stigma of market hunting, because market hunting was just total greed. Sure. They didn't care if they totally eliminated the species. It was all about money. That yeah. was their living. Yeah. So then when hunting started, and they named it sport hunting, you know, that created, as the years went on and you get into the anti-hunters of PETA, the word sport hunting kind of labels it as like basketball or baseball. You're doing it for fun. Right. And killing should never be labeled as a sport. Mm -hmm. You know, they should have called it ethical hunting or something like that. Because, you know, <clears throat> killing animals is not a sport. It's an activity, but it should never be labeled as a sport to mm -hmm. be interfered with. Right. by people that don't hunt as something like it's basketball or football yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yeah. So market hunting, they, they, they went right to sport hunting to people that were just hunting for leisure and for food and for fun. Um, and I'm going to send you guys an article I wrote. If you promise me, you'll read it. Okay. Sure. Pretty intense, but it's about that whole situation that we're talking about right now. Okay. Yeah, no, I think it'd be a great one. And, and I guess it, We'll read it out loud. I bring, podcast. I bring, yeah, I bring that up because there is a um, uh, there again. There's a lot of verticals in here. We we obviously hit on the guy who intensely manages his property. We hit on the guy who really hunts for the challenge. In a past podcast, we talked about, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of outfitters in the whitetail community. I wouldn't say are necessarily market hunting, but they're damn close to it, right? Getting I mean, the most money out they, of the resource. They are maximizing uh, a, a property business. and a resource. Yeah. It's a business for them, but they for sure are are over hunting a herd. You know, they're abusing it, and or you know, it, at least taking such extreme measures on it that it could damage that herd long term. Um, you know, and so you see these buckets out there, and and this is why people will say all the time, "Well, we don't want to be divisive about hunting." 
listen, it, it's not anybody or any person saying anything to be divisive. It's the fact that naturally we are divided as hunters. Everybody does it for a different reason. Everybody kind of looks at it for a different purpose. Um, and and you, until you come to that realization, you're not going to come to the terms of the fact that as a group of hunters, we are divided. It's just, we are, we'll, we'll oh, never yeah. be unified. We will never be unified. Well, and that doesn't mean that we can't be unified on certain grounds on yeah if it comes to issues that would threaten all of our our right or ability to PETA, hunt, absolutely there are things we need this to all article i send about. you will touch on that okay big yep. time and yep. it's very in-depth and it, yeah if you want to read it you're more oh, right. is it more or a, more or less in depth than the scent lock <laughs> what more or less in depth than the scent lock instructions um it's less it's probably <laughs> three or four page i'm gonna send yeah, you we the, can do that the short version well on the cell lock documents when i send that i'm just all you your really bibles. need to read is is document one and two i sent 13 documents and some pictures yeah. of activated carbon with a molecule bonded to it but the rest of this stuff i don't you know to say just do this and you don't have to pay attention to what you have to understand the technology Sure. You know, people spend five, six hundred bucks for city, which is way overpriced gear for what it is. It's nice stuff, way overpriced, has zero technology whatsoever. Yeah, we just bought Probably a ton of it. Membrane. <laughs> what? I said, yeah, we just bought a ton of it. Oh God. Well, well we listen, John. We get a, we, we're not sponsored. We get a discount through Whitetail Properties, so we were just looking okay. for an upgrade in apparel. I just don't understand how people can buy so much super high price gear that has zero technology. Other than obviously windproof, waterproof, you know, maybe it has some, mm -hmm. you know, uh, antimicrobial interior, which it's not mm. touching. Your skin. I mean, for it's mine, for my stuff, it's mainly, I, I want it to fit well. I want it to be comfortable. I want it to keep me dry you and want warm. You want a quality garment. You want quality of apparel. Yep. That's what I pay Irregardless for. Irregardless of scent technology. Any technology other than that. Yeah. I, I just, it blows my mind that people... Don't take advantage of the scent technology. That just that boggles my mind. It's a belief issue, a hundred percent. I mean, if people believed, yeah, despite your best efforts to convince them, I, you know, I realize you're fighting a good fight. All I, you gotta do is try it and do it right. right. And I think believe. <laughs> I think a lot of people are just like, well, I can't, I can't possibly be true, and so they just kind of, um, what's the word they uh just like dismiss it to dismiss it well and it, you know unfortunately because i mean we wore scent lock for many years um and unfortunately some of the garments that we got from just they don't fit right like this my, was, yeah, old, this was years ago this yeah, was years ago yeah my my crotch was at my knees like i i can't it doesn't not in a good right. way yeah, yeah. <laughs> not, not in a good way. i'm not that there's, blessed. there's stuff their stuff is better now and yeah. i would guarantee because i've done a Zillion well, is your is your new suit out, John? Is it like available yeah, for it's, sale? It's in fact, the pants just came out. I think Monday they got or Tuesday. Gotcha. But anyway, that that's another story. But uh, to me, if you're not, there's lots of people that have had sound lock and they didn't use it. If you don't use it properly, if you don't, if you don't uh, desorb it properly, if you don't care for it properly, if you don't store it properly, and if you don't use it properly with other stuff in conjunction with it. It's not going to work. Right. So, you know, people that have used it in the past and it didn't work, I totally 100% understand that because they didn't do it properly. 
John, they didn't do everything you needed to do. I'm assuming you've got a, a fairly intimate knowledge of how the technology in Scentlock works. Is yeah. that something that's fairly easily applied to a, another garment? Is it something that's proprietary to Scentlock? Like, could could somebody else make that technology? No, they all, no, they have the U.S. patent on it. Nobody else can use it without paying them a royalty. Okay, and the patent is on the activated carbon. Activated carbon. Yeah. Okay. Correct. Interesting. And they have not done a very good job of telling people how to properly use Well, frankly, product. they, you know, they battled scent blocker until eventually they acquired scent blocker. You know, that, that battle lasted and probably drained a lot of resources, I'd have to imagine. Um, well, scent blocker, when scent blocker came out, scent lock came out in 92, scent blocker is owned by Robinson Industries, which also owns scent shield, which is the sprays. Yep. Um, and when they came out with some blocker, they used activated carbon with Scentlock owning the patent on it. Well, after a couple of years, they Scentlock sent them a cease and desist order. They refused to do that, so Scentlock took them to court. They won that in a, in a court, and they paid them a lot of money for all the suits they had sold up to that point, and then sent blocker actually licensed. Uh, they were paying something like around eight hundred grand to a million dollars a year in royalties to use activated carbon. Wow. Talk about and after they did that for your about legs. five mm. years, they decided to go to something different. So they went to this man-made stuff, which had some absorptant capacity, but was it that, was nothing. Is, is that when they trinity. really put they push like the antimicrobial type? No, stuff? No, no, it was Trinity. Trinity. It was trinity. I remember that. Yeah, I remember Trinity Technology. Yeah, yeah. And so then they they just. Once they went to Trinity, it just wasn't effective, and they started losing business. And finally, they ended up selling to Scentlock. So now, Scent Blocker uses the same exact activated carbon liner that Scentlock used for years, hmm. but Scentlock clothing uses activated carbon plus treated carbon plus zeolite. Got it. So that, that patent will expire. Has a little some... bit more absorption. The patent, the patent will expire at some point, right? 20 years, usually. Well, 20 plus. The patent on using just activated carbon has expired, but the patent on using uh, carbon alloy with treated carbon and zeolite has not. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's um, it's one of those things that I think people just fail to realize or, frankly, you know, they just ignore like they just don't they'll pay attention to it and and you know wear whatever their buddies are wearing i don't know well i i think it has a lot to do with uh social media i think yeah, the marketing so side. social media has guys on there that say it doesn't work because they've never done it effectively sure. and never done sure. it properly and i think hunters typically tend to be pretty lazy and they're like well if I just hunt like he does in a plaid shirt and blue jeans and a pair of sneakers and he's killing big bucks, I can do that. And then they don't kill it because they're not hunting the same type wow. of property. So they just, mm -hmm. they still follow the guy because they like him or whoever it may be. And they just do that same method, even though they're not killing anything because they're not hunting in the same types of properties. Either. I mean, I can remember doing a podcast in the, the name of, uh, oh, the lone wolf guy, Andre DeQuisto yeah. came up. And, you know, he had shot 580 inches on his property, 800 acres in Iowa. I think it was 800, something like that. And it, it came up that, well, he doesn't pay his attention to scent. Well, it's the same deal as the Don Higgins. You know, if you're on the property all the time, you're the only guy hunting 800 acres and you're growing these deer and you're out there and they, they smell your odor or they 
you know, they never get shot at till they get to the, be that 180 inches. Yeah, you don't have to pay attention to scent control. Mm-hmm. You know, just like the TV guys. So look how many guys on TV shoot monster bucks with no scent control whatsoever. But for guys that are working hard and hunting pressured areas where every little detail matters and helps your kill percentages over your lifespan of hunting, I just don't understand not using it. Yeah. It just blows it, it can't But ha- it is what it is. It can't help either, John, that you've got, you know, essentially every you know, hundreds probably of different products in the hunting industry claiming to eliminate scent. The ozone uh, one was the one that I think yeah. fooled most people. Yeah. Yeah. They bought into oh. it. Everybody bought into it hard. And then when you finally learn about ozone and you're like, wait a minute, I can't even breathe this stuff in without it like damaging me if it's at the right levels to yeah. destroy scent or cover whatever it does. You quickly realize, like, there's no way I can plug this thing in my truck and like survive. <laughs> I thought that was the craziest thing ever. That was right? the craziest. Right. You know, I would watch. We, we joked about it. I won't name names, but I would watch people like using it in the blind and thinking their face was gonna half melt off or something. Bill Winky. I thought he was gonna fall. Like he's like, man, Bill's been looking awful dreary since that. Uh, he's been taking a lot of naps in the rednecks ever since that Ozonic sponsorship. Yeah, but that was one. And, and I mean, I think we can all say. That that's kind of faded off now, right? I mean, uh, yes oh. and no. There are still guys that are bought in, but on I it. don't think it's nearly as because uh, I think scent. Uh, what the hell is the other scent? Crusher has sold to Faradine recently. Okay. Well, yeah. and see, that's a gray area one because it's like, and I haven't. I'm not a doctor. I've done the research, but like I, enough people have basically filled me in on the fact that like there is, a, there is. Uh, some validity to ozone technology. They'll use it to like sterilize surgery equipment and like it, it, Absolutely. Kills, it kills bacteria. That's totally. all. But that's it has a, to be at a level that right. literally you can't right. breathe in or it's going to damage your well, lungs. And so that's why like the scent crusher approach, you know, sterile, you know, treating your clothes and your gear with that makes sense. Like I, c- I can see that working. But, I agree. But in, in the field I, application where it's supposed to, a shower is supposed to cover your scent cone is like just unreal. And people swear by it. And I have to believe it's it's just. Um, I've used it. It's like they a. Smell me. I don't know if it's a false confidence or. or um, 100% it is. Yeah. they're just It's like a placebo effect. Yeah. Like they, they have it in place. And if they don't, they'll screw up a deer hunt because they don't have it in place because mentally they think that everything is going to go wrong. 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Ozone is interesting. They, they sent me three uh, ozone six machines when that first came out yep. into the industry. Yep. And, uh, and it, yeah. Oh, it ozone definitely works. It yeah. definitely kills bacteria. No doubt about it. But it also leaves a foreign odor. Yeah. Sure. Ozone leaves a foreign odor. So when you have one over your head and you're out west on, or you're hunting TV and micromanaged properties, deer accept a lot of things. They accept that. Man, oh man, you use that. Real high-profile TV guy that I know. He was sponsored by Ozone, and he's shot, I don't know, 70, 80 open young bucks out of state on his TV show. And he owns 80 acres up here in Everett, Michigan. And he said the first time he used it in his property, and he said every year and a half and two-and-a-half-year-old buck came in from Donlin's school front because it's a foreign odor to the well, location. Say, well, check this out. If we can smell it, I assume they smell it. Well, check this out. Absolutely. Well, so and it's let, foreign. Yes. Yeah. So let's say in terms of like uh... – if, if ozone is not eliminating scent altogether, it must be some kind of odor. You know, we're saying it's it's foreign because it's, and I would agree, it's it's produced by a, a machine. It's, it's a foreign smell. Um, the alternative would be, okay, if, if you're not going to eliminate smell completely, like something that I've done is I'll, I'll just like bask in like my, 
my parents have a big wood burning stove outside that heats their home. I'll just smoke it up. Like I'm wafting my clothes in there. I get as smoky as I possibly can. And uh, I know that obviously has a smell. I, I can smell it. Yeah, um, sure. But I think that it's not a foreign odor. I think there's, you know, in the fall time, there's fires all the time. Them deer, you know, smell campfires. They smell, you know, wood-burning stoves. And so I would prefer, and you and I are, are going to disagree on this, John, because, like, I don't think I can completely eliminate my my human scent. I just, I haven't been able to do it. Um, so I would rather have not an unforeign smell like the smell of smoke covering up a you know cover scent it's not a new concept i mean i i've had a lot of luck with smoking out that's definitely going to be better than having human odor without without question and, deba- and, and debatably thing. ozone odor is going to be better than ozone because that's a foreign smell as opposed to an absolutely odor. okay yeah now ozone i think thing. works i think ozone works great for like uh treating your yeah if like if I wasn't wearing scent lock, I would have no problem because I would never use ozone on my scent lock. Great, great for putting the kids to bed, you know. <laughs> settles, yeah, put, settles them right put that down. In, there in the morning, they're dead. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they just start but getting I mean, real groggy. Yeah, for treating your clothing because the ozone odor does dissipate after a while, yeah. and it does eliminate all the human odor that was in it. So, mm-hmm. but still, if you're wearing permeable clothing, as soon as you step out. Yeah. As soon as you get your clothes on, it's gonna your human odors you're emitting are gonna emit through the permeable yeah. fabric and gonna be out into the open. And it's another thing I wanted to mention because um you know, you talk about all these different scent things. I think sprays are the same way. Sodium bicarbonate is something you can definitely smell. And in where I hunt in Michigan, uh every little detail matters. So if I'm using I, I quit using sprays years ago because they would i think i got winded because i had spray on my so clothing what's in those john are they all they're all a sodium bicarbonate you said the I, only one that's the, not the, would be dead downwind they use an enzyme but i think that also has sodium bicarbonate in it as well which is nothing more than baking soda baking same soda. stuff you put in okay. your refrigerator to absorb odors out of your refrigerator sure. so it does have some odor absorbent capacity but it has an odor as well. It's okay. own odor. And that, as far as antimicrobials, because you get a lot of clothing manufacturers, even mine, I'm a rough. I know all this stuff about clothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when you put an antimicrobial in an exterior jacket on, on the interior of your exterior jacket, it's not touching your skin. For an antimicrobial right. to work, it has to touch your skin and come in contact with the bacteria to kill it. Okay. And it's like you have ants in your house spraying the outside of your house to kill the ants inside it doesn't work that way yeah so antimicrobials in a base garment or having silver or gold like scent blocker does on their base garments see silver is a natural antimicrobial and you can wash it a gazillion times and it's still going to kill bacteria antimicrobial treatments are a treatment and when you wash your clothes a few times that treatment's gone mm. as well because that was what was that was that under armor who was the antimicrobial push on it yeah, it was. Yeah, and so I, I think there's been a lot of other clothing companies that handle that. Well, well a lot of them do it on base garments. C- right. Continue on. Garment. Continue on with your sprays, because do those are a big question mark for me. That's one where people are like, "Does it work or not?" I have no idea. I get the biggest laugh out of watching a TV guy get out of his truck, go to the back of his pickup truck, put on his clothes, and then spritz down a spray like that's going to work. You notice they always still pay attention to wind direction. Yeah. Yeah, always. Yeah, sprays definitely 100% guarantee 
do not work at eliminating your green odor. Mm. No way. No way. Sodium bicarbonate has a very minimal amount of odor uh, absorbent capacity. And also when you're spraying it on, as soon as it dries, a lot of that, the actual sodium bicarbonate is going to, you know, just fluff off the soup, especially so I, when you walk through vegetation. I think that the, probably the, the two main uses that I've still like I clung to, I don't know, it's one of those things where it's like I in my my heart, like I know it doesn't work, but I'm like, ah, oh, it's like, man, if I don't do it, I don't know. It's like my boots and my hat, like the inside of my hat and like the outside of my boots, just being like, I don't know. Those are the things that, I don't know, seem right to spray. <laughs> <laughs> well, your boots are, I mean, your boots are waterproof. Why yeah. would you spray the exterior of your boots if no odor is on them anyway? Well, it's not human odor. It would be just other odor. Like if they've come in contact with my truck or, you know. That's the thought. I, I guess okay. I never I never thought about spray as, you know, having to correlate specifically with human scent as much as just an, any scent. Yeah. Well, I, I always view anything as a foreign odor as negative yeah. to me, honey. So my boots, I, I never wear my regular hunting boots, you know, in anything other than a hunting scenario. Mm -hmm. So I don't really worry about the exterior. And when I buy a pair of new boots, I don't wear them hunting for two years. I let the exteriors. My, well, and so. I put them out in the garage and let them air out. And tell me I'm a lazy hunter because I, pro I, pro I probably deserve it, you know, so that's fine. No, I'm not going to tell you that. Well, but Everybody. so, and I'll just be honest with you here. So, like, you know, I start out pretty strong. First couple hunts out of the year, it's like, you know, I dress outside the truck. I try to, you know, but, you know, end of October, early November starts rolling around. I'm like, okay, I'm just, I'm going to rip over. Like, it's, I, I'm, I'm riding in the truck and I know full well, like, I've went to the gym and sweat on oh. my car seat you know what i'm saying like i know it's but i know i know i know it's bad man i know and and i definitely take the wind into account for that reason a hundred percent yeah i'm a way more regimented than that i stick to my guns all the time on that, mm -hmm. that part so are you traveling to your hunting spot in street clothes basically john and then yes and yeah. i assume you wash your street clothes too uh no i don't oh you son of a bitch i got you <laughs> i got you there I do not, well once i put on my sunlock exterior i'm not worried about Dude, anything you're you're I got essentially keeping it you're keeping it captured in inside of those garments john that's everything okay. underneath is irrelevant gotcha. got it so do you, sh do you shower before you go out in the mornings i do not in the evenings i do uh, in the morning i just get out of bed and yeah, go yeah. on I'm or put you. on my street clothes because i don't hunt by my house drive yeah. to where i'm going slide between the seats into the back uh put on my scent lock gloves i take off my pants and shirt and then i put on my scent lock gloves and then handle everything with my scent lock gloves on when i'm putting on my scent lock yeah. my scent lock pack and my boots and stuff and then i just open the side door and go well i mean i, I do take it serious it's funny because like <laughs> is it stored in a scent lock bag Everything is stored in airtight containers, including my undergarments and all my rain wear. Everything is in airtight containers. Everything, yeah. so, even my underwear. So when you say airtight containers, are you talking like a, like a plastic tote or is it something specialized? It's a plastic tote. Okay. Um, vacuum sealed. With a rubber seal on it. It's not like the Sterilites and rubber yeah, yeah. stuff. Yeah. Walmart for eight bucks. It's the actual $40, yeah. $50. Plano makes them. Uh, Hunter Specialty makes yep. them. Yep. We have some of those. Some. Do you ever have any issues when you come back from a hunt? Let's say you're hunting and it rains and your garments are wet. What's the process there? Because you're not probably throwing them right in the tote wet, are you? 
I put them in a plastic bag. I got plastic bags in the back, and then when I get home, I dry them. I don't wash my sunblock. It just gets absorbed in the dryer. Because the carbon is activated via the heat cycle, right? Correct. Yes. That's what deadsorbs the – it's not reactivated. You can't reactivate the carbon in a sunblock suit. Okay. Reactivating means you bring it back to its pristine state when it was originally Which is not possible. Yeah, that's 1,450 degrees plus Fahrenheit under pressure. Yeah, So gotcha. all the dryer does is it deabsorbs it. It removes the majority of the molecules off the carbon pores. And then over time, you know, those molecules that it doesn't, you know, deabsorb from over about an eight to 10 year period, it gets to the point where it's kind of compromised. Hmm. Got it. But every time you deabsorb it, it gets rid of a ton of those molecules. It opens the pores up so it can... That's not control. I've lost you guys. <laughs> well, not, no, like, no, no, no. I feel you. like John's going to uh, be disappointed <clears throat> when we're drinking coffee and eating Casey's breakfast pizza and our hunting suits before we go out. I'll take her ozone. That'll so be fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I have no problem with that. No, it's. The it, thing I really cut out is pungent food, you know, like garlics and onions, because I permeate that. Oh, uh, yeah. Bad. <laughs> yeah. Coming out of my body. I, I think it's just the, th- <clears throat> the thought of. um. You know, how easily a scent regimen can go wrong. Oh, very. I th- I would say that most people listening at this don't have as good a scent regimen as they think. I don't. Yeah. I know it. Well, because it's like, you know, I'll... First of all, we don't we don't know... We think we know what works, but it's so influenced by marketing or our, our ex- perceived yeah. experience. And so, like, for me at this point, I, I wash... At the beginning of the season, at a bare minimum, I wash everything possible. Like, so for this elk mm-hmm. hunt, I washed... My sleeping bag, my towels, my pillowcase, anything that I'm going to be, you know, having in a lot contact. of contact with. And obviously my clothes and my pack, you know, everything fabric that I can fit into the washer, I, I do that. Um, yeah. But inevitably, you know, <clears throat> on the elk hunt, I'll be in contact with a, with a horse and, you know, we're not be able to shower like morning and night, like mm-hmm. as often as you would be. And when it comes to deer hunting, it's like, man, whether I get on the e-bike and I'm, the seat has some scent or I get in my truck and that obviously... You know, it's it's so easily tainted, and it's just like it can be overwhelming to try to keep up with. John, are you concerned you at all? What? Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead, John. Well, I was just going to say the process of being scent free is all in the. It's just like hunting. All of your hunting revolves around how well you are prepared, how well you prepped your locations, how well you scouted. <laughs> if you've done all that correctly, you're probably going to kill something in front of the area where you got a couple nice bucks. Um, scent control is the same deal. It's all in how well you keep your clothing prepared. Once the, my vehicle stops, I slide between the seats, take off my pants, take off my shirt, put on my base garments, throw on my jacket, throw on my pants, grab my backpack out of its airtight tote, grab my bow, and I'm out the door. I'll be out of the door. I 100% guarantee quicker than either one of you if we park behind each other at the same moment. Mm-hmm. So it's all in the preparation stage. It has nothing to do with once you get to your spot, how long it takes you to prepare to go walk into the field. Maybe last question here on the sense stuff. It's all what, in the what, what, do you, what do you do with like, I don't know how to say, orifices on your face, nose, mouth? That's all covered with a head cover and drop out face. 40% of your rotor comes out of your head. Yeah. So mm-hmm. half, that's what, that's the thing most sunlight guys don't do is they don't put their head cover on. Sure. I'm not talking about ball cap like you guys have. 
because now you got hair sticking out. Yeah, yeah. You know, a it's huge amount terrible. of oil comes out of your hair follicle. I know. So you got to have your nose covered, your mouth covered, your ears covered, back of your hair, your neck. You know, it tucks down into in here. So you got a face cover, and the only thing you expose is your eyes. And then when you go to take a shot with a release, you just, yeah. you know, reach up and pull it down under your chin and pull wow. back so it doesn't hamper your anchor point from taking shots. And so it's not, you know, it's not like a filtering mask. It's literally, you're trying to contain. Oh, yeah, it's got carbon in it. It's, yeah, okay. this okay. mask you're wearing is a sunblock head cover with it, and it's got a drop down face mask. So it covers. Everything except your beady little eyes. Gotcha. <laughs> John, are you concerned, uh, I guess, past the scent piece uh, at all with UV on apparel Ooh, and clothing? Or, or oh. the hex stuff, the electric, electro radial. Yeah. <laughs> You've heard of this? You know what the hex oh, stuff yeah. is? Yeah, I've heard. I don't know much about it. I have talked to guys that used it, though, that got wind. You know, they, sure. they were spotlight guys, and they just wanted to try it. Just so they could tell yeah. them they speak about it, and then they got winded with the hex stuff. So. Well, it's not. I don't think it has anything to do with scent. It's it's like what hex, and I correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I thought it had to do with no, scent no, no, no. It has what to do it? with like the electromagnetic fields. electromagnetic fields of people. Yeah, yeah. Nothing to do with wind, which I guess could be their out. Well, you got winded, not detected. So. Uh, so what's the what's its function to not pay attention to wind? It, they think th so. I think they're marketing, and I don't. Mm. I, th I think they're still in business. But yeah, um, basically, it's like, have you ever you ever know when a big buck just knows you're there? <laughs> you know, even if he's upwind, that's your electromagnetic field. Like you're putting off uh, an energy that the hex oh garments gosh. are claimed to be able to like contain. Yeah. Well, I apologize because I thought it was something to do with scent. Mm -mm. And the guys that I, they still get, they you got winded when they used it. Yeah. As far as the electromagnetic field, I would put absolutely zero into that. Yeah, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I've never seen a direct <laughs> my electromagnetic field around. Yeah. I mean, I think that it's a, like it's weird. a stretch piece. The UV and deer vision has been one that I've yeah. always kind of paid attention to because. You know, if you ever take a, a black light to a hunting garment, there's certain ones that are very dull. There's other ones that light up like the Fourth of July and a lot, a lot of, lot of semen. They, they light up big time. They got cotton. Most of the polyester stuff does. Yeah, yeah. And most suits are made out of polyester anymore. Very it, few are made out of cotton. Yeah, yeah. And so that was cotton. Yeah, that was a big one that came out and was kind of like, whoa, you know. How do you do that? Oh, and, yeah. Because that's when, I don't know, who's who makes the sport wash? You know, just a little white bottle. Snow seal. Is it snow Asco? seal? As, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Asco. Yeah, because yeah. yeah. that was one where, you know, those guys, I don't know, necessarily were marketing to us as hunters, but became very popular for that UV deterrent type detergent. It's That product has always, like, because the packaging is so terrible. Like, it just looks like, <laughs> it looks like such yeah. a B product, but it's hilarious, Boy, like, how uh, much, you know, and again, Just I, don't, word of mouth. I don't know how much that actually works. Like, I do know that UV that's is what a I big use. thing that's to the deal with. I have. But, like, you know, whether it actually does something or not, I don't uh -huh. know. On cotton, it makes a difference. I mean, I, I when I shot leaks and back in some of the dark systems and stuff, they had black lights yep. in the in the actual room. And, boy, if a guy walked in there with a cotton T-shirt on, he, he glowed. Yeah, yeah. That <laughs> if, makes he washed, if he had washed it quite a few times. Yeah, interesting. Polyester doesn't cave to that. Hmm. 
Always learning something new from Mr. Eberhart. You know, it's just the way we are. Just young. Well, I've been in the rag industry for years. Yeah. <laughs> well, you've seen it, man, and and it's evolved. And you know, the unfortunate thing is there are plenty of gimmicks out there. Um, you know, and and ultimately everybody's gonna find something that they feel secure in or comfortable in or or believe in. And you know, I think that that confidence, you know, often will ye- yield, you know, success results tenderloins. As your uncle confidence has a lot to do with it. What you have confidence in means a lot. Yeah. Did I, did I tell John my uncle's uh, little adage there? I, I don't remember if he did If, I, if I did, I'll get, I'll get it to you. My, my uncle, who, you would really get along with my uncle well. You guys have a lot of similar ways that you think about things. He says, uh, a little bit of baking soda to the arse and groin will often yield the tenderloin. <laughs> <laughs> arse and groin. <laughs> That'll do it. <laughs> you know, something to live oh, by. Oh, my God. I've been watching these commercials on TV now where this woman is actually talking about putting stuff up her butt crack to get rid of the old. Wow. Uh, that was on, that's on regular TV. Amazing. What kind of TV channels are you watching? <laughs> He's like, it's these high number ones late at night. I don't get it. Five, five, five. Five, five. Oh, man. Oh well, listen, John, we appreciate you coming on and, and getting you before the season. We're, we look forward to kind of how the season goes for you, and hopefully we'll be able to grab you at some point later this fall and kind of recap what you saw and keep educating us on it. It's always it's always a, a true pleasure, man, to have you on. We, we really feel feel lucky to bring you in and share, share your wisdom with us and, um, you know, just to share passionate talks with somebody else who really enjoys bow hunting, you know, at a core level is – you know, something that we always just find ourselves attracted to. So, can I throw a plug in there about my saddle hunters? Do it. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, price point wise, with 20% discount, there is a uh, it's online only, and the uh, 20% discount is S A D D L E 20. Saddle 20. That's, that'll get you a 20% discount, and that's $159 okay. for the jacket or the pan. And the jacket is. You know, I design it. It's got 100 grams of insulate in the body, 80 grams in the arms. It's got a polyurethane membrane, so it's windproof. They're overlapped and sewn, so it's damn near waterproof. It's got a 180 uh, fleece exterior, a 180 fleece interior. So it's not an overly bulky suit. Mm-hmm. And basically, I want that 180 fleece exterior to mask the noise of the polyurethane membrane. Got a really short collar, damn near no collar in the front, but it goes up under your ears. It's three inches tall in the back to block the wind. It's got a shirt tail hem in the back, which is, I think I started that whole design on shirt tail hems back in mm-hmm. 2005 when I designed a Rivers West garment. Uh, and it's designed for saddle hunters, so the pockets on the jacket are up higher so you can get into them because pockets, regular slash pockets on a regular jacket are low enough where you can't get into them when you're in your saddle. Right. Saddle tank covers them a little bit. And then on the pants, the pants have built-in knee pads. Oh, the jacket also has a slot in the back so a regular hunter can use it. Harness. Hunting mm-hmm. The pants have built-in knee pads. It has a rise in the back of the pant to help overlap that back so you don't get any wind up in there. And it has a quick draw on the front where you just grab a tag in, a quick adjust on the front so you just zip your pants up pull on that and it's tight so you don't have to have a belt it does have belt loops uh does not have pockets in the rear because when you're in a saddle you don't have any use for rear pockets it's got leg pockets 
pockets up at the top and then it has a two-way zipper so you can zip it from the bottom up or the top down on your fly and and it's designed for rut face hunting you know 60 plus percent of the bucks entered in the PMY book and i've done that research for 20 years are shot during the rut phases mm -hmm. so rut phase hunts in the midwest and in the northeast typically you're looking at you know 20 to 40 degree weather 45 maybe and so that's what this suit is designed for it's designed for rut phase hunting but it's not bulky most suits you get for cold weather they're just super bulky and i like to layer underneath stuff on an as-need basis and not overheat on my entries so it's uh it's very well designed and uh again it has a, a carbon alloy liner so it's uh you know got all the scent protection is that um are, are, so they're buying that directly from scentlock.com right now right got it perfect go get you some yeah and and tethered's still carrying the eberhardt signature saddle they are there you go yes yeah so those are your two two stops if you're listening to this. And I've you, got one of those. I, I went back to Tethered and I bought all the uh, what they call them oh. linemans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Linemen to treat each other. Carab you got the carabiner and everything too. Uh, well, yeah. What's the little gold guy that instead of a person knot? Rope man. man. Rope yeah, man. man. I bought two of those. I bought one for my my belt and also my mm -hmm. line. I modified. I think I modified this. ESS for you two guys. You right? did. You did. We're not exactly straight legal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you may have pulled the restrictor plates off of ours. You yeah, might so say. if you hear about <laughs> that. Yeah. It makes it easier to use. Yeah. Cool. Well, sure. awesome, John. Well, we appreciate it, man. If uh, anybody's listening to this, check out John's new suit at scentlock.com and the Eberhardt saddle at uh, tether.com. And well, I'm sure we'll be yanking on Mr. Eberhardt's ear at some point this fall and pull him back Anytime, in. Man. Cool. Anytime, man. Good luck. Good luck to you guys and everybody else out here. You even start, you guys in the south. Yeah, even the southern <laughs> guys. Even you guys. You get you start October first, John. Is that opening day? Yeah. And yes. are you? Uh, you're you're a go at it opening day, right? I mean, you're 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 diving in. Oh hard. yeah, I did a speed tour yesterday. I did. I went to do a speed tour and put out some cameras, and I ended up finding a. About eighteen oaks and I'm back in the swamp of marsh grass, and I, I ended up going back in my vehicle and getting stuff and prep, prepping a new tree too. You think nice. that might be an opening day set for you? Um, no, because there's there's two guys that hunt this property, and they walk the edge of the swamp on opening morning at just about the crack of daylight. So if I hunt back in the swamp, they they push everything beyond me. Yeah. Because this is like a hundred yards into the swamp. They push everything back in farther. I've hunted there two times opening morning before both times they come through there with their bright ass headlamps and scoop <laughs> everything back in. Yeah. Son of a bitch. If that's you I listening just, to I this. I just did two videos on headlamps and reflective markers. And, um oh. I did I don't have much good to say about headlamps. <laughs> I like it. Well, cool, John. We appreciate it, man. And uh, we'll catch up with you later this fall. Okay. Thank you. Good luck, guys. Thanks, yeah, sir. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, awesome. John, always good to have on. We covered a lot there. That was a long one. If you're still listening to this, it's like late in the game. It's like three hours in. Oh, yeah. So, um, but no, cool. I mean, some really critical points. Obviously, I wanted to pull that Mitch Rompola piece out, but uh, I think his scent control, I don't know. It, I'm not defeated on it. It's just is a lot.
And frankly, I know that I'm sloppy at it. So John's a lot in a good way. Yeah. The best way possible. Yeah. Well, I think, um, I mean, first of all, and no knock on his age, like I hope when I'm his age, I have that fire still. Cause that dude is just like rearing yeah. to go. Well, did, we didn't even touch on it. I don't think, but you know, his, his shoulder issues are, you know, he's having to continually decrease weight. Like mm-hmm. he's down to what? 40, 40 pounds, 40 pounds on his bow. Mm-hmm. Um, so to all you crossbow yeah. switcher is, yeah, yeah, he's like, it's possible. It's a know? giant middle finger to it, and so, you well, know, he just, you know, he just loves it, you know, and so he's just trying mm-hmm. to stretch it out as long as he can, which I admire. Yeah, it's it's um, you know, it's interesting to hear him, and and John's just he's super confident in what he does, you know, and I'm sure, you know, I twitched a little bit as he talked about the Higgins stuff, but like. You know, it's just because he is very sure of what he does and how he does it. And, you know, I'm sure there are some people out there that, you know, hunt very managed setups that if you dropped them onto, you know, a piece of public that they wouldn't be able to, you know, kill themselves out of wet paper bag. Well, you know, differing opinions, even strong ones like John's, and they are strong, um, you know, it doesn't mean that they're bad guys. You know, mm-hmm. you just you just see something a different way. You know, and you're adamant. You've seen success, maybe personally, and like, you know, it, it can it can be natural to be like, well, f that guy. Like, I'm not going to listen to that. I you do know? love hearing him. Like, he is purely a 125 or bigger. Mm-hmm. I don't care if it's a two year old. I don't care if it's an eight year old. 125 or bigger. Mm-hmm. Like, and and I, part of me appreciates that because it's a little simpler. Uh, mm-hmm. in that, like, you know, the age game is tough. I mean, how many times a day do you and I probably send pictures to each other and we're like three or four? Well, it's a, uh, it's simpler. It's a simpler way to look at mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, uh, you could make the argument also that it's a, it's a less, um, like what would be the opposite of, of simple, you know, harder, but in a good way. Like it's more dynamic. Yeah. It's more thoughtful to consider the age of an animal and the potential it has to display over well, years of its life. And I think that's, again, a situational thing because he has, he can't think of age in a place like public where he can't control the age structure sure. versus private land management, which in some cases we can. Sure. So he has to then say, well, let's, th- what's the best I can do? It's probably based on score. Now, Again, I'm sure if he's hunting the same area and there's a two-year-old 125 and a four-year-old 125, I have to believe he shoots the four-year-old 125. No, I think he will. Zero. None whatsoever is what he told us. I think he cares somewhat. I don't I don't think he does, man. I think uh, it's, it's Pope and Young. Maybe. It's, uh, it's hard for us to get over because that age is so important to us. And it, it was not always important to me. Like, I mean, there was plenty of time where it was big, big rack or points or whatever, you know, and then... At some point, it you know, and maybe that's the management brain. So if you only hunt public land, maybe age means nothing to you. It is. It's it's the management, but it's also. I'd be interested in hearing for people because I know there's a lot of people that just hunt public land listening to this. Like, does age matter? Or, or are you literally trying to kill just a big buck? Right. Well, and it's not as black and white as size is the only thing that matters. It, mm-hmm. <laughs> age is the only thing that matters. Uh, the Thank re- God. You know, <laughs> they both matter independently or you could make the argument that they do, but I think for a lot of, you know, age-oriented guys, it's because of their ability to produce inches of antler at Mm -hmm. a certain age class. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because, like, part of me thinks it's attractive to think, man, if I just said, I just want to kill a Pope and Young buck every year, 
kill a lot of freaking deer, man. I'd be whacking oh, and dude. stacking. I've passed so many three-year-olds, it's sick. I would be stacking. And, and I don't say that in an arrogant way. I'm just, there's a, a lot of opportunities to kill P and Y deer every year. Yeah. And normally they're not, not bragging. We're just like no, in no, the no. States in the spots to do it, you know, it, but normally it's because, and I don't shoot them because they're three or younger. Right. Um, and that's that evolution to where I want to kill. And, and for me, and I know we're the same, but a little different on this. Like I really get a kick every year of, of going after an individual. Yeah. Like when I find that buck that I want to kill, it may be in one of the three States that I hunt. Yeah. Like I am sick over that deer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just kind of the way I like to hunt. I probably miss a lot of opportunities on other four year old bucks I could yeah. shoot, but I just, I don't know. I kind of like that one-on-one battle a little yeah, bit. I'm more of an opportunist. Mm-hmm. Dude, I, I feel so strongly about, uh, and, and this is, I don't know, maybe just dumb. Uh, <laughs> like, if I was faced with a situation where the best that I could do is is 125, like that's the, the best mm-hmm. that the- That's the biggest, baddest buck in the area. I'd leave. Well, that's what I'm saying earlier. I, I would go hunt somewhere where that's I could. Where, so, like, I'm I'm kind of situated. And he is. I mean, he's that's why he goes to Kansas. Yeah, I'm kind of situated with that in Pennsylvania right now. Like, I'm going to kill a Pennsylvania buck. I'd leave year. as in live somewhere else. No, no, no. But my hunting would take Mo- place primarily so like, where that's possible. The the places I have nine or ten cell cameras out in Pennsylvania right now. I do not have a buck that I want to shoot on camera in Pennsylvania right now. I do not. I'm not saying that he won't show up. I just don't have one. At some point in September, I'm going to make the move to start going to find a buck that I will want to hunt. Um, and, and I'll do that for at least a little while until at some point I have to balance my efforts between trying to find a buck in Pennsylvania and hunting a buck in Ohio or Kentucky that I want to kill. Um, but I, I, you know, and I've got openly, you know, 1100 acres of Pennsylvania ground to kill. I don't have a buck on there that I want to shoot. So I'm going to go to public probably. And eventually we're hunting with Steve Shirk up North, which he's got bucks will kill. I just, don't know where or what we have no connection to it right. um but yeah i mean you just have to figure out what um what you want to do and i, I think that it, it all depends on what your expectations are but yeah i mean there's you know maybe if i want to kill a buck in pennsylvania this year i have to shoot a three-year-old i think uh let me clarify what i said on the 125 thing like it's not that there's anything wrong with 125 inches at all mm-hmm. I, you know I have done and I will in the future shoot mature bucks that are th- of that yeah. score, you know, score class. Yep. I think for me, what's disappointing is like, regardless of the location, knowing that a two or three year old buck is not showing its full potential, that, that to me is, um, takes away from the experience. So even if the, the oldest that a deer can get, in an area is two or three. Mm-hmm. If I go and kill him, knowing mm-hmm. that man, that's the that's the biggest oldest buck mm-hmm. in here, it still is disappointing to me that that animal didn't get to show its maximum potential. Even knowing that he likely, because yeah. you never know a hundred percent, but likely he wouldn't have. Made yeah, it. and I think that's where the public land guys and and being a public land hunter for a long time, like that was the first four year old buck I killed on public land. That was in Missouri. Mm-hmm. Um, it you know being like I've, I've had that fight of like, uh, like, why not shoot that three-year-old because there isn't a four-year-old I'm going to kill that I've seen or that I know about, mm-hmm. you know? And yes, I'd like to get him to four, but like he probably won't. Um, 
So yeah. that's that's kind of the battle. I, and I'm not I'm not saying that John or anybody is wrong. Like that's yeah, you got to work mm-hmm. with the the hand that you got dealt. I just personally find it, you know, it do, it doesn't uh, like I I don't feel good about killing an animal knowing that. It's tough, man. It's <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it, I think it's I think it's also stages of the career. Um, you know, what have you harvested in the past? Like if you've never killed a buck over 120, then yeah, you're going to kill that 125 three-year-old. Well, and I feel like I've been there. I've been there when guys have killed nice two-year-old deer and, and even three-year-old deer. Mm-hmm. And, and I have, there's no animosity towards the hunter. Like I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not like, oh dude, you you ruined my sure. opportunity. Or There's, there, maybe at one time I felt that way, but that was, you know, pretty immature of me. At this point, it's just, I just feel it's a shame. Well, you I, know, I think that it's the uh, it goes, not that the hunter should be ashamed. It's no, just no, no. it's a bummer for me that 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 deer didn't live to see his full potential. <laughs> see, I would have to hear it in context more, right? Because let's say a guy's been bow hunting for ten years, he's never killed a buck or killed a couple small bucks, kills that two year old one twenty. I'm happy for him. Sure. I think he's happy. There it, are, can, it can be both things. There are people though who I think every year hunt and just kill one and two year olds, one and two year olds, and at some point. Maybe they're happy. I just, me personally, how I am as a human, I question why haven't you tried to do better? Yeah. Why I, haven't you tried to challenge I, I think yourself it's, further? It's less of our, I mean, I agree. I agree with what you're saying. I feel it's less of our place to judge why, why people hunt. I mean, that's what makes yeah, it so yeah. great. Yeah, and I'm not, that's why I said I have to understand it in context, but yeah. I, I, it's just like, if you complain to e- me, even in context, though, I mean, people are different. Like, you know, I mean, th- there are people that just fr- that's what they want to do. And that's I don't think it is, though. I think that they convince themselves they want to do that. It's just like their job. If they go to a job eight to four every day and they're miserable, change. And if you tell me you can't change, you're not trying. That That is the world we live in. I understand you have to pay bills. Right. But you can figure something else out. You can you can look for another job. You can attempt to get another job. Um, ultimately. If, if you have, if you're miserable at what you're doing or you're not happy or you're telling yourself this is the best you can ever do and you haven't challenged yourself, that's a personal issue. Um, you know, and you, you, you can, you can fix that. You can get out of that. You can change your life. You can do better. Um, so I, I, I question that in context. If somebody is just wanting to kill a buck every year, I don't think that they like to hunt as much as they think they do. Sure. That's fair. That's fair. You know, but there are guys out there that just, you know, it's, it's priorities. You know what I mean? You know, some people yeah. have obligations, responsibilities like that. Just, they keep them out of the woods. Maybe, maybe they have, like you said, in context, maybe they haven't been able to get out mm-hmm. in two years. In a weird way. I like hunting so much. I don't want to shoot a buck first day. Because I don't yeah. want to be done. No, I, I understand that. That's why we have other states to hunt. Like, it, it's just, uh, again, I'm not picking on anyone there. It's just at some point, if you kill a bunch of, of um, one and two-year-olds, especially if there's the opportunity to do bigger and do better, mm-hmm. why haven't you have to ask yourself, why haven't you challenged yourself to pass a two-year-old? Well, the question it's is, not the end of the year. What, you know, what is better? Because, like, it's not everybody's goal to kill a big buck. I don't, I don't think. But everybody, there's not a person listening to this thing that doesn't step into a tree stand or a blind and say, in an imagine and daydream of a giant buck coming out. I don't know. 
I mean, yeah, they might not be listening, but they're out there. You know, and that's why do they do it then? You know, me. I don't think meat's a, I don't think meat's a legitimate answer. I mean, given I I I eat a lot of deer meat every year. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there are, or I won't say that there aren't any. There are very few that hunt purely for a sustenance reason now. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a huge number, but I definitely think they're out there. Not many. I, I think uh, people. I, and I, I don't think know. people I don't, do I don't speak they for want to her, eat. but like you know, out, outdoor alley is one of those people. Yeah, who, but she doesn't need to kill to survive. Well, I'm not saying they need to kill. To That's survive. what I'm saying. Sustenance of like, I want to kill to to like, I can't afford well, groceries. Yeah, preference over necessity is, but that's kind of irrelevant here. Which is what like I would eat deer meat over beef most days. I wouldn't see. I would. Why? Uh, I just like it. I know where it comes from. It's lean. Yeah. Okay. I like that aspect of so it, but I don't need like I don't need the deer. I could go out and buy meat. Right. But you're also a diehard bow hunter trying to hunt mature bucks sure. so, so it's an added benefit but i'm gonna kill a doe or somebody if the kids don't kill a doe i will smack a doe early just so i have fresh deer yeah. meat yeah um well and what i'm saying is there definitely are people out there that hunt once or twice a year for meat because it's their preference that they have an organic food source a hundred percent do you only hunt once or twice a year though if you're really wanting that meat i don't know that's my question if you get the meat in one or two hunts then yeah yeah yeah, it's a weird. I get what you're saying. It's, a weird it's hard because we're there. so invested in you know the pursuit of like. Yeah, the, and I'm not saying don't challenge. Well, but here here would be my counter to that. Then don't shoot a one year old buck. Shoot a doe. Yes, but it's irrelevant to them. Well, you know they. I see what you're saying. It would be to our benefit that they would shoot a doe, so that those bucks are left, so that we can achieve our goal as well. You're saying they shoot a buck just to say I shot a buck. And I think it's a rel- for those people we're talking about. I don't think it matters. I don't care if it's a buck or a doe. First brown down. Yeah. Hmm. Whatever's legal. Whatever has adequate meat. See, like I, for. I've heard a lot of people say I shoot a buck just to say because uh, I want to shoot a buck. Like I want to say that I killed a buck. Yeah, that happens too. I'm sure. Hmm. A lot of layers, man. That's what I mean. That's what's. I'm awesome. peeling them out. I'm going yeah. down the onion route. At some point, you guys will make me cry, but. <laughs> You like that, Nick? That was pretty good. <laughs> that was good. That was. Um, <laughs> All right, uh, we're done. All right, we're, we're deep done. into this one. Ninety-three, John Eberhart. Um, it is almost October. If you're listening to this, or maybe it is October. If you're listening to this, I don't know. And it's hunting season, so enjoy it, regardless of why you hunt. So yeah, I brought everybody together at the end there. Still pretty warm inside. <laughs> it didn't mind make you cry. Yeah. Okay. We'll see you next week. Later. Take me oh.